This is a cubic foot. There are five more of these inside the new Chevrolet than there are inside this year's older style full-size cars of Chevy's nearest sales competitor. That's based on U.S. government estimates of vehicle interior size as reported in the 1977 EPA Guide for New Car Buyers. The new Chevrolet with five more cubic feet of room. It stacks up beautifully. Now that's more like it. part of the evening to tango <laughs> we just blake just nodded off there yeah well, i was setting everything up what everybody doesn't realize is um today we're in dion's parents basement um got to be real quiet and we had to be real quiet but we managed to pull off the lift yeah <laughs> dion got some good momentum going Jumped into my arms, and I was able to lift him over my head. It was good. But knocked the, him into the ceiling yeah, I was gonna because say, it's the basement. It was, it was <laughs> terrible. We have, I have a low ceiling in the basement, and as well as it's one of those staccato yeah. ceilings, so my back's bleeding. Yeah, you got the stucco. <laughs> deal that you can let, it's almost like stalactites, <laughs> little stalactites hanging down, right? So as you put me up, you went... <laughs> And I went, <laughs> and then we hear, when's it going to end? <laughs> enough. Enough. Dion, enough. I don't think people realize that, um, that, that we say that a, quite a bit. Oh, um, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I'm Dion Baia. And I'm Blake. And um, some years ago, um, well, I used to torture my father and my parents, particularly growing up doing like, you know, home videos in the basement. And then that would be the thing. Like it's midnight. You're acting like a fucking nut. You know, uh, everyone's trying to sleep. So you're hopped, hopped up yeah. with Joe Cola yeah, and Mega Joe Cola and all that kind of stuff. You're running around. You, you know, you completely destroyed the place. So my dad would knock. He'd be like, enough. Bring me up the video camera. Go to bed. This is ridiculous. It's one in the fucking morning. I got to be up at five. And so, that's like... And there's a floor in between. And there's a floor in between because we're in the You're basement. In the basement, and then there's the first floor. Yeah, and then, then your parents the second are sleeping floor on the second and the bedroom. Floor. So that you can imagine how loud we're being. <laughs> so, cut to it was after college. Yeah. So it was. We, it, we were having a sleepover. <laughs> <laughs> well, we graduated college, and Blake came over to and he spent like a weekend or a, a short a week because we were going to see Buddy Guy. That wasn't we were going to see that Buddy might Guy. Might have been toads. the Buddy Guy week. Yeah. So. Um, the first night we were just going crazy and just we were high on. We weren't even drinking anything. We were just high on like soda and like life and seeing each other. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see each other. We were just laughing. Yeah, we were, you time. know, uh, making a lot of old jokes about college and all the old jokes that we used to laugh at. We were just throwing them back out on the table. And we're like, ah! <laughs> and I peed myself because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, two in the morning, my dad opens. I was like, when's it going to end? <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, Dad. And then it was, again, it was a floor removed. They're like on the second floor. We're in the basement. And I can't imagine how loud we're being, you know? Loud we're being. We were so loud. Yeah. Um, but yes, after we watched this movie tonight, we were we were, we were going to get in the pool, but then well, uh, <laughs> we, we hadn't take the cover off yet because it hasn't hit. Well, we had some Memorial Day, so we, maybe my dad just hadn't shocked it yet, you know, put the shock in. Because so, you can't go in the water once they shock it. You've got to wait like 48 hours. 
something like that. So we couldn't go in the water and practice the lift. So we were trying to practice lift in the basement. <laughs> we just should have realized that the clearance. We ain't as small as we used to be. Yeah, the, serence, the clearance. You know. When we used to do it back in our old days. <laughs> yeah. Basically what it was, it was almost like a fight move because you think about it, all you do is just grab me and throw me up into the ceiling. <laughs> And, and then we got also got to see for like the um, for the lighting we have some of that the uh, spotlighting that hangs down. We broke one of the bulbs. I got to see if my dad. It's one of those old '90s, '80s big bulbs. <laughs> they you still know. make that. Yeah, it's all dusty. It hasn't been changed since they put it in. So we got to figure out how like to pop the cap. It's going to be involved. Yeah, yeah. So now we, then we got to go back onto the unfinished side of the basement by the workbench to try to find like an old dusty <laughs> light bulb. You know. So. Yeah. We got a lot of work ahead of us here. It was an ordeal. So we yeah. got to blow right through this cat. Yeah. We got <laughs> yeah, to <laughs> fix a lot of stuff. We got to we, we got to clean the blood off the ceiling. Yeah, we got to get all the the the, the stucco that's on in, now that's in the carpet. We got to vacuum they the gotta carpet. Got to take tweezers and pick pieces out of your back. Yeah, because right now all I have on it is um, uh, <laughs> um, hydrogen peroxide and it's burning <laughs> like a son of a bitch. So you might occasionally hear a. S- so, but that's what we get trying to, you know, imitate movies. We got movies. into it. Yeah, I mean, we were all. Ex- I broke the vinyl out because I have this uh, this this soundtrack on vinyl. Mm-hmm. We were listening to it, you know. We live in um, our days as being teenage girls in yeah. the Catskills. Yeah, it was it was amazing. It was uh, Jewish teenage girls. In the Catskills. <laughs> yeah, people don't realize that about us. That yeah. when we were younger, we were we were Jewish it was, it was, teenage it was, Jew, Jew, Jewish teenage girls. We used to work for a experimental uh, government agency that made us uh, leap from time to time within our own lifetimes, and we both leaped into a uh, into Jewish girl. This joke is going <laughs> circa nineteen sixty three. Yeah, much like Time Tunnel, that Irvin Allen show, which is kind of like interesting, like uh, quantum leap. But anyway, yeah. So this week we're doing a so, uh, a favorite of the ladies. <laughs> And actually, now uh, that I've watched it again, since I haven't seen it in a couple of years, it, it's, it's a, a favorite, favorite of mine. It's yeah. a favorite of yours now, it was too. Really, yeah, you know, because, let's see, we're doing 1987's Dirty Kicking Dancing. Kicking at 87 one yeah. more time. One more, t- yeah, we're stuck in 87. We've got the flux capacitor out, and we're trying to dial that <laughs> thing in, and it just, <laughs> the button doesn't work yeah. for, the, for the year. <laughs> yeah, so we're stuck in 87 because, um, let's see, uh, a month ago, we did... Um, We've done a lot of 87. Yeah, well, but, I mean, we've done most, almost all of the movies this year have been an anniversary in some way. Not yeah. all of them, but almost all of them. Yeah. So last last week we did uh, Over the Top. Two yeah. weeks ago we did Over the Top. Last week you guested on um, a great podcast. We did the crossover. You we t- did, you did the F This Crossover. Yeah. F This Sleepover Crossover. Yeah. And the, the guys over at this Where we were stuck in 85. We yeah. did the, team, the, the werewolf movies of 1985. You and Patrick from... Patrick um, Bromley from F This Movie. Yeah. And on you, his show, I did Silver Bullet. Yeah. So on F This Movie, I did Silver Bullet. Which is really good for people who, who, are, who are listeners of our podcast, because you'll, you may remember that Blake had also done a side cast on Silver Bullet with our mutual friend from college... Dave Hastings, who we bring up all the time, who we yeah. brought up last week because you had the, uh, that's who you went and visited down in, uh, in the North v- Carolina to and, w- and watched over the top so, like half a dozen times. <laughs> over and over again. With his brother who yeah, yeah. did the theme song for, with, all, along with all, you. It's all connected. It's all tied in. All and tied then, in. so, you had originally recorded a sidecast with him with Silver Bullet, so then you did another Silver Bullet sidecast, or podcast with Patrick. With Patrick for F This Movie, and then Patrick then came over for a sleepover. Yeah. And we, t- and we talked about, we watched and talked about Teen Wolf. Awesome. 85, uh, Michael K- J. Fox. Kicking it 85 style. With the uh, Boof. Boof. The Boof. Ch- chasing Boof. Chasing Boof. You guys yeah, even know your biographies now. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I feel like we've really got, 
We really. You guys really bonded. Was that really, sleepover? <laughs> we really had a nice sleepover bonding. Katrick really opened up, had some real revelations. Do you guys remember growing up when you'd have someone over and then you'd fall asleep and then you weren't really quite ready to go to sleep yet, but it's dark and you guys start talking and then you're up for like another two hours just, <laughs> just getting know, to know each yeah, other. Yeah, laughing and joking and it was much like that. The two of you, you turn the light out and you just get... Yes, we found out we both share a love of Alyssa Milano. We both love 21 Jump Street. Yep. Uh, we both... You know, think that Scott should have went with Boof <laughs> in Teen Wolf yeah. originally, not Bacula, because we were talking about a Quantum Leap. But yeah, so you know, it was fun. So that was '85. But then two weeks ago, we were in '87, and I thought before that we were in '87, but maybe we weren't. We could have been. Yeah, but we're stuck. We were in '97. That uh, was it. Fifth Element. Yeah. So, we but were... I think like uh, I could be wrong, but I think like Master of the Universe was '87. Yeah, that was '87. Adventures of Babysitting, I think, was 87. Correct. Was was uh, Freddy's, Freddy's uh, Fred, Dream Warriors? Dream Wars might have been 87. So and, we've, been kick, uh, we've been kicking at 87. Uh, no, uh, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but then we also have a couple 87 movies coming out to, uh, down the pike. So well, 87 was a, was a good year for sleepover movies. <laughs> Very formative year for us. And this is 88. It was the best sleepover. <laughs> had the best sleepover because all those movies that came out in '87, they all came, came out on video. on video in '88. Uh, back when, like, it took a year to six months to a year to come out on video. Uh, but now we're stuck in '87. We're doing uh, Dirty Dancing, and um, this movie for me, I remember in '87. There was a kid up the road that I hung out with. I didn't go to school with him, and I don't know now. I think about it, I don't even know where the kid went to school. So maybe he went to private I don't even know school. Where he lived, where he came from. We well, I knew on the <laughs> it's it's one of those things where like his parents never met my parents, but then I'd go. He didn't live down the street, but he lived like a couple blocks away. So me and my other friend Martin started to hang out with this kid Chad, and we hung out with him. For, and this was I only remember hanging out with him for a couple of years, and these were the years I hung out with him there. And we used to play like war with our guns and stuff. And over his house, we all discovered me, my friend Martin, who I bring up frequently on this cast, and Chad. We discovered like um, Dead Heat together, mm-hmm. uh, RoboCop together, you know. And I remember being <laughs> over his house and his parents watching this in '87, and and like uh, I was almost annoyed because I wasn't into this. Yeah, I had just like, discovered, shit? yeah, I had just discovered the Untouchables. <laughs> I'm just a little kid. Yeah, and I, I like Dead Heat zombies. <laughs> I like gangsters, and I like uh, cops who are killed and brought back as ro- you know as androids. So, like, I was all into that stuff. So when this was on, I was like, eh, you know, it didn't really appeal to me. There's singing, dancing, and I'm really into, like, you know, little boy stuff. So I didn't end up watching this for the first time, I think, all the way through. I'd seen bits of it on TV probably till college because we had, at that time, it was the 10-year anniversary in 97 when we went into college. And there was a big resurgence for this then. Thank you, I guess, to Conan O'Brien. Yes, (laughs) oddly (laughs) enough. Oddly enough, we didn't even really... I wasn't a hugest fan of this movie, but so there was a resurgence then, and I saw it back to front then and liked it, and then I must have seen it once or twice since, but then watching it again tonight, it really brought a lot of memories back, and it just emphasizes the score. This is another one of those examples of a movie we say, with like a, you know, big soundtrack, which we've done a lot of those this year, haven't we? The Wayne's World had a big soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dream Wars, certainly the last one. Um, Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Over the Top that was criticized as being a complete music video for that soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is another film where we have big... Um, oh, this soundtrack was huge. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's amazing, since you brought Reservoir Dogs up, you take um, Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel, where 
I would put money on, not a lot of people would remember prior to Reservoir Dogs. But yeah. then after Reservoir Dogs, it became such a hit that it's now, you, you still hear it on music all the time. It's coming on AM radio or FM radio. And I, it's amazing a film is able to do that. And this film, Dirty Dancing, was able to do that for all these songs. There's like yeah. this, almost like this doo-wop resurgence, which I think along with, I remember seeing Back to the Future in like 85, 86. I saw it in the theater and I love the Penguins Earth Angel. Yeah, so yeah. much so I was like seeking out Earth Angel so I started listening to like old like doo-wop stations and all this stuff and then when this movie came out I feel like that maybe I'm sure there's other things in there like um, Eddie and the Cruisers or something that completely had that sure, yeah. late 80s resurgence of like 50s doo-wop yeah there was the rockabilly. 80s the 80s was a weird time for music because you had like all that um, hair bands and stuff well like, you had like the hair metal stuff but you also had like that new wave you like know. talking heads and yeah, yeah, yeah. like you know, you know, yeah, doing new stuff. stuff like you know but then you there also you're right there was like this rock and roll resurgence i mean you had like the stray cats yeah became pretty big and um, and you had big bands like look at van halen <laughs> covering uh louis primo with like just a gigolo well that was that was solo david lee roth but yeah he did yeah. that but then they also did like pretty woman they had yeah. a cover of pretty woman and um uh mick jagger david bowie did dancing in the streets yeah uh, which Van Halen might have also done a cover of that one on uh, Diver Down, but uh, but then even like Billy Joel with the, the Innocent Man album, that was all like a tribute to like fifties and early sixties doo-wop. I mean, he had like homages. Uptown Girl is like a Frankie Valli song, yeah. and uh, so it was. Uh, Tell her about it was very much like a supposed to be like his version of like the Supreme, yeah, yeah, like Diana Ross kind of thing. So yeah, the eighties had like this, which I guess is. It's interesting now that we're, but you know, we talk, older. You know, as we're getting older, we're seeing, we're, we're pointing out these, like little. Well, we're seeing, you know, like with the, the remake thing. Everybody's yeah. like, oh, like oh, remake of Escape from New York. So they're talking about that again. All these remakes coming out, but it's like you think about okay, like so that's thirty some years ago, or that's like the, that's what, the eighties. Yeah, 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 like, so, yeah. But then, like, in the 80s, they were remaking movies from the 50s. Yeah. You know, 78 was almost 80. They did the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The Thing was a 50s movie. The Fly was a remake of... The Blob was a... Yeah. So it seems like a 30-year cycle seems to be the thing. And now... So, you know, things now... You know, there's this whole synthwave music... uh, thing happening which is very much like an 80s oh you, yeah like so, the rob soundtrack to the remake of maniac yeah, yeah. or driven yeah or like uh, the oh, not uh, driven driven is the salon movie we forgot last week drive drive yeah, yeah yeah so it's interesting now that we've got some distance we, we can see we can that like if there's a site it literally is kind of like a cycle and we brought up on the um i think the monster squad podcast also in the in the funny enough in the 80s was the big resurgence into like the movie monsters oh yeah yeah Remember? so it was like we were and it, that probably has a lot to do with funny enough if you look at it, our parents being our age now back then obsessing maybe about their youth the 50s yeah. you know uh i mean the cowboy movies didn't have a <laughs> didn't have a big impact in the in the 80s i mean you had like silverado and like east was yeah, the young tail rider young yeah in the late 80s but it wasn't like the 60s and 70s were huge and i think the 90s had like a little a cowboy resurgence yeah. but aside from that you certainly did have all those horror remake movies and so it's really uh interesting to to, to follow that cycle because then maybe in the 90s you had kids who were older then suddenly they're discovering like the 60s and 70s and that's why maybe after grunge you have that 
you know, uh, retrospective into like 70s stuff. Well, they had that thing of like power pop around that same time as grunge. Like one of my favorite bands, Jellyfish, was doing this thing called power pop, which was very much looking at 60s and 70s music. Harmony, very big into harmonies and production. I mean, uh, a lot of their stuff, when you listen to them, you can hear the influences of things like the Beach Boys and Queen and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's this weird cycle that's happening that we didn't, at least I didn't realize until recently when I started looking. Yeah, at you, that kind of you thing. start putting the start like sit down next to a calendar and you start. Like, this, is, <laughs> you know, this is interesting, you know. And it kind of yeah. in, in a weird segue. And this movie brings up a, a really interesting idea, which I am fascinated by because you and I are big blues fans. You know, uh, I, I don't know if we can call each other blues pseudo historians, but we we like the blues and that kind of yeah, music. And I'm yeah. I'm a big band, uh, fan of big band music as well, like sure. early Frank Sinatra. And it amazes me. This is a great example in this movie, Dirty Dancing, where you have like, you know, um, sh- the, the family goes away to the Catskills and they're there, and you have the it's it's this takes place in August of 1963, so you're right on the cusp. And she says that in the beginning on their drive up, like it's it's pre Beatles, pre JFK assassination, uh, you know, pre. Uh, MLK getting killed, which is in 68. But after, I think, the Beatles hitting in JFK, you kind of lose that that 50s and you enter the 60s as we know it. Um, My point is, it's interesting to see that, like, in this movie especially, you see, like, uh, say, how... Uh, in society, in in in. T- Have we mentioned that we're talking about dirty dancing? Tonight? Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, we're doing dirty dancing from 1987. Making sure Patrick Swayze, uh, Jennifer Grey, uh, Jerry Orbach, Jack Weston, a whole bunch of people in the movie. Um, you see that the. Uh, almost, it's kind of like drugs. When we had Randy Jurgensen talking to us about the inf- the infiltration from drugs from the inner cities into the upper middle class, how music is. Yeah. In this movie, you have they they go to the the, the Catskills Resort, and they're still putting on there the big band. They're, they're playing like Len Miller, really slow <laughs> stuff that they can dance to. But then you know, w- once the tango breaks out, you're getting into a little more edgy music. Yeah. And at the time. Certainly starting in the 50s where you had like these black bands playing like rock and roll, but then you'd have like Pat Boone go and do it, you know, yeah, white a, it. A white version. A white yeah. version uh, until maybe Elvis hits and then it's socially accepted. And that's the same thing with the blues where you have... Well, even then it wasn't. Yeah. Well, that's... It wasn't really socially no, accepted. No, you're right. But it's it's showing in this movie too. In 63, it's still not accepted. It's like... But you see the young people are doing it and it's much like in, in lower... Um, income like in like poor families and rural areas say yeah. like uh in african-american areas in the south in the 40s the blues was everywhere and you'd go to these juke joints or the roadhouses and you'd see this music but it took another 10 years once the, that community migrated to the big cities uh to kind of knock jazz out you then you had blues there and then you know blues and jazz like the muddy water song you know they had a baby they named it rock and roll yeah, and it's yeah. like you know, rock and roll hits in the '50s, and it's still not like you're saying socially accepted in, in yeah. the '60s. Well, I think, here. That, I think you make you bring up a really good point: is the idea of like this, they got to go see the workers, this and the dirt, workers are doing it. This you know? dirt, yeah, this this aspect of quote unquote dirty dancing. I mean, when rock and roll hit in the '50s, I mean, it was scandalous. Yeah, it was the devil. I mean, they've always called they called the blues the devil's music, but like you know, it's people were like you know they were worried that it was corrupting the youth. There was a big juvenile delinquency, yeah. And there was this idea of like these dance parties where they would get kind of a little bit risque, and it was they were getting pregnant. (laughs) You know, I mean, this is leading to. I mean, they're grinding, and that's something you never saw. 
But that really was happening, that and that was part of the scandal of it. It yeah. was like the youth was grabbing this as like a rebellious thing. And you see a lot of the... And, there is, and rock and roll is about sexuality. And I think that fed a lot of prejudices, because you had like, you know, Latinos and African Americans doing it. So then you, that's why people are like, we don't want to listen to that kind of music, because people get worried that it's going to corrupt their, you know, children's youth. And it also, I mean... And a wider, um, to throw the net a little wider in the 50s too, you had a lot of this because people were worried about the level of juvenile delinquency. And we talked about like uh, Wartham, the psychologist who like tried to ban comic books because they were, you know, um, contributing to juvenile delinquency. So you had a lot of, uh, you know, in the 50s, they were worried about their youth being corrupted, which I guess they didn't really fix it because in the 60s you know they, they they all their youth ended up being all the people who did all the social tried to do all the social movements <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know but they were they, they knew back then they're like this is bad <laughs> this is gonna go south but you had this here that this is definitely like something it's an aspect of this which is like you know they're not doing it in the big band hall but if you go to like the workers quarters yeah, yeah. they're doing they're listening to it on a record you know gramophones yeah. or victrolas or records and they're you and know. just the fact that this movie takes place in 1963 is playing to the this cycle that we were just yeah, talking about. Exactly. It's right it's right at the end. And even at the end of the movie, you have Jack Weston, the owner of the hotel, talking to the the band leader Tito. Shit ain't like it used yeah. to be. <laughs> and it's and also, uh yeah, and he's talking about you remember back in the day. So it's like they're also it's almost an end of an era to them. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's almost sad and in real life, what ends up ends up happening is by they're they're completely right about Jack Weston's completely right about what he says. It's like people don't want to come to these things anymore since they've gotten money. You know, after World War II, there's been a lot of like a little more economic growth and comfortability with suburbs. People do want to go traveling. They don't want to just go in a car. You know, they yeah, want or yeah. they want to get into a car because of the Eisenhower interstate system, and they want to go across the country, not just an hour away. Yeah. So that these these little getaway bungalow type hotels end up closing by the late 60s because they don't have the audiences going up there anymore because people are going all over the country or the world. Um, I saw the uh, stage play of this like a month and a half ago. Yeah. It came through New Haven and I took my wife to see it because she's a huge fan of this and uh, it opened on London's West End and, and we were looking if it ever came over here. So I ended up seeing that and I'll bring that up later because it's interesting how it, some of the plot and, and then also what they develop differently from this that is really odd. Yeah, I have a question. I wanted to, we'll get to yeah. that. Because I also had questions because I didn't watch the whole like TV. No, I didn't see the TV thing at I, all. But I did, wa- I did end up catching like the last 20 minutes or yeah. so. And so I wanted to ask you because there's different there's differences in that yeah and i wanted to ask you if, if it, those, those match taking, up to taking the, from the music to the play, play which is all done by the same lady what's her face um eleanor bergstein <laughs> who did the who originally wrote this uh idea script that turned into the 87 movie and then she helped adapt the the stage plays which i think in 2004 started in australia and then after australia went to england and then from england came over here maybe 2010 or 11 um I think we should also omit, since we're talking about Catskills um, Resorts, about your family tutelage and how you have a uh, uh, a link to that kind of era of, uh, you know, the uh, Poconos, Catskills, um, you know what I mean? You, yeah, um, my grandfather was a, was a comedian and a dancer and a singer, uh, part of a comedy duo from Philadelphia, Philadelphia called Fisher and Marks. And uh, they were kind of closely knit with the uh, 
like the Rat Pack era guys. Um, good friends with Joey Bishop. Joey Bishop was a very good friend of them of theirs, and they would tour together with Joey Bishop and kind of open with for Joey Bishop, but also partake, you know, do stuff together with him on stage. And so, yeah, my kind of there are ties. There's family ties to this era of of uh, entertainment and the idea of doing cat the Catskill stuff. You're bringing it up specifically because we were just talking. Uh, the on the antenna, the channel antenna TV, yeah. which is through the aerial, but on some cable networks, they've been airing the old Joy Bishop show, and there's an episode that Fisher and Marks guest star in where it's all about this nostalgia for when they used when their youth when they used to work at a Catskills resort, yeah, as like the the same kind of jobs you see here as like the events guy. It's they, a, such a, a wait, bygone a era. Waiter, they would work as a waiter, but then they would also do. Kind of like the, a, accent, the right? amateur act yeah. of, that they were developing in, in their youth, and it seems like I think post World War One or post, I guess, Depression, when people started to, I mean, they've, I guess, the, the, those resorts have been there since the turn of the century. But it's interesting to think that people, once they kind of had some money in their pockets, that their families would go to these, like you know, um, uh, in the within their region of where they live, these resorts, and you'd have big acts. You'd have Frank Sinatra. You'd have, uh, you know elements of the rack pack go to the Catskills yeah. to play so you could go spend a weekend there and you could see these acts or you could see your your grandfather Fisher and Marks playing there I, I also you know? I have this running joke with certain friends um, wherever whenever I read or hear something that I think sounds like an old comic name yeah I always say oh I remember when I saw them at the Catskills so you know going to uh, on the Upper West Side there's this store called Murray's Sturgeon Shop. So it's all like uh Kefelta fish and stuff like that. So they have um uh Schmaltz Herring. <laughs> so I'm like, oh Schmaltz Herring, I saw him at the Cat's Kill. They killed. <laughs> they opened for Roddy Dangerfield. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on com- um, there's some commercial that's about uh that plays at least here in the in the in the New York City area, I think for some place that does some kind of liposuction type stuff, and they're like those stubborn fatty bulges. Oh yeah, I was like, oh, fatty bulges and, <laughs> and small tearing. I saw that to do a show together. Yeah, <laughs> bananas Foster. <laughs> you see, it's hilarious. Uh, fatty fatty bulges. On he got over that sex scandal <laughs> that almost ruined his career. So I you do. Know. I do have. I have this running joke with people. Where I, <laughs> I bring whenever I hear a name that it sounds like a funny old comic, like an name. old vaudeville. Like, oh yeah, I remember when I saw them at the Catskills. And it's such a. It's I have such a, a romanticism for this whole like for the certainly I have a huge affinity for the old vaudeville era and then this and it's just it's fascinating because I think for the large part. None of this is around anymore. And um, certainly when they went to go look to try to film this movie, I think the only thing they actually shot in New York State or City is the beginning shot where you see the car driving up 87, the Major Deegan, towards the Catskills because they ended up shooting this, um, I think, at two different locations. They ended up, uh, instead of, they couldn't, what ended up happening was that all these um, uh, places had been since uh, closed down in the late 60s or 70s, so they couldn't find one that was adequate enough for the movie to to make it look like it was an older place that 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 really had the facilities that they needed to for the plot of the movie. So they ended up shooting this in in uh, Lake Luke, um, an old boys camp in North Carolina, and then they shot in Mountain Lake Hotel in Roanoke, Virginia, and they shot the exteriors at one and they shot the interiors in the other. So it, it's fascinating to see that they didn't even shoot this up at the Catskills. Yeah, well, you know, it's because it's, it's, it's all gone. <laughs> it didn't exist anymore, yeah, really, by the know, 80s. Um, 
So this movie comes out in 87. Uh, we have in it Patrick Swayze, the Swayze. The Swayze. The Swayze. Uh, Rest in peace. Swayze. Yeah. Like, uh, it's such a sad, sad story with him um, in passing away from uh, um, pancreatic cancer in yeah. 2009. And, uh, this is what my, grandfa- my grandmother died of pancreatic cancer yeah. also. It's one of those cancers where they don't. You don't, yeah, you don't know you have it until kind of it's too late. Chris's father died of that. Where they, they, uh, a friend of ours that was my childhood friend. Where yeah, once the once they you have the issue and you go to the doctor and they diagnose it, you only have it maybe six months to live, and that's about. I think you have an eighty or an eighty-five percent fatality rate with that. You know, only a few people are able to beat it because it's so far advanced at that point. Um, so he um, in eighty-five or eighty-six, Patrick Swayze was born in Texas, and he was he was. His mother was a um, was a professional dancer, dance instructor. His father was a draftsman uh, out of Houston, and he had grown up dancing, doing all these other things. And then he was acting in high school and doing ballet, uh, probably because of his mother's influence. But he was also on the sports team. He did football, and he was a football player. And he thought he was going to get a scholarship to college to uh, play football. And I find that also fascinating to think about. Uh, had um, the reason why Patrick Swayze, the Swayze, didn't end up going uh, to college on football because he had a knee injury that completely sidelined him and he couldn't go and, and follow in, uh, a football career. And I find that amazing that you think of how many stars we know today uh, had their bodies not failed them, they would have uh, instead not have been the legends they are. I know we talked about in Smoking the Bandit, like Burt Reynolds, he was going for a football scholarship and he ended up like hurting his shoulder or something. And you hear so many stories where these guys think they're going to have this career in athletics, but then for some reason or another, they don't because um, they have some sort of injury. And then on the side, they instead like, oh, I'll just start acting. I think it was also maybe Newman did the same thing. He was going to be uh, hockey or so I forget what we said in the... Um, we just did the uh, cast from 1977 of, um, uh, what the hell is the name of that movie? The hockey movie. Uh, Slapshot. Slapshot, thank you so much. Yeah, so, I mean, these these guys end up just, like, falling into acting, and then they become these legends that we know of today, Burt Reynolds and Swayze, and that's what Swayze did. Swayze ended up um, going to school instead for, like, dance and then acting, and he graduated, and he just started getting work, uh, I think, one of his first big roles was a bit part on MASH in a very quintessential episode. <clears throat> and then he uh, showed up in the early 80s in various things. He's done like The Outsiders, I think. Well, yeah, he, he gets on the map on The Outsiders, then he does Red Dawn. And then uh, maybe there's something in between, but then he comes out with this. And you know, and then Jennifer Grey, her father is... Uh, Joel Grey. Joel Grey, who is a huge... People will know him, uh, of course, in, in films, but he was, was a huge Broadway guy. Yeah. You know, and he's... Uh, Joel Grey's already p- appeared on our cast because he was in Yellowface in Remo Williams. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I mean, this, that's 1985 <laughs> Yellowface, where you're like, wow, you could still pull off Yellowface in 1985? <laughs> um, but I guess you could still do it because that Cloud Atlas had... Um, what's her face in Yellowface? Uh, Holly Berry was in Yellowface. Yeah. Kind of the idea of that movie is that they're all in every part of that movie. Yeah. I've never seen yeah. it. It looks fascinating. Yeah. It's actually, it is pretty interesting. Yeah. But that's kind of the point. The part of that movie is... part of the, One of the, the motifs of that movie is that every scenario... Like, they play the characters. That's so, a, it's almost like a play. So it would have been weird to not have her play in that section. She's like an elderly Japanese or Chinese man. In it yeah, or something. Yeah. And she's unrecognizable because I think they just put one of those huge prosthetic masks over her face. But anyway, so Joel Gray had been on the cast, our, our, our 
podcast. Yeah, he's already he was for Cabaret. Didn't he win like the yeah. Academy Award? It's or funny because we'll get into Jerry Orbach being in this movie, but in the in the seventies, um, Jerry Orbach was huge on Broadway as well, and they kind of had a rivalry together because of the different plays they were in at the same time. Um, and uh, Orbach had gotten famous on the Broadway stage in the 60s and 70s doing like Guys and Dolls, Chicago, 42nd Street. And then in the 80s, he started to act. He did some commercials in the late 70s. And then the 80s, and then he was on Password and a couple of those like 70s game shows. And he was in Prince of the City, which I love. I think that's Sidney Lament. Um, and then he did FX, which we love. He's the heavy <laughs> yeah. in FX. Yeah. And then he's in Crimes and Misdemeanors, the Woody Allen film. And then he hits this up. And then he ends up getting a career as Lenny Bristow on uh, Law and & Order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was just, we just did uh, Beauty and the Beast. He was Lemire in uh, Beauty and the Beast. So it, they, they, he must, Orbach must have already known Gray to a certain extent, Jennifer Gray, because she, he knew the father. Yeah, and yeah. I would assume they had some sort of relationship. And she uh, had grown up in the city, did odd work, and then... She graduates high school and she starts doing acting bits and she ends up, I think, having some bit parts. She's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. I mean, that's the, not even a bit, a bit part. No, she's know. sizable in that. And then she's also in, she's Red, in Red Dawn. Red Dawn, yeah. And then she might, Ferris Bueller might be uh, after Red Dawn. And uh, between Red Dawn and this movie, she does that. And then she hooks up with Matthew Broadwick and they, Broderick, and they start dating. So they were dating at the time that this movie came out and they talk about when they were filming the locations down south, like the local towns would be kind of like an awe that when Patrick Swayze would come visit, but they were really uh, over the moon when they'd see Matthew Broderick because he was huge in the mid-80s at this time too. So by the time she hits this movie, you know, they're all kind of, the stars are aligning. And at the time, they only thought they'd be able to get Jerry Orbach because he had he was a legend on Broadway, but they, they couldn't figure out how to uh, get this movie done, which is odd, you know. Um, and there's this whole other Jewish undertone of this movie, which I never really saw. And I don't know if it's an ethnic thing because I was really consciously trying to watch for it when we, you and I watched this. And I really don't, like I hear like a lot of like Jewish people say like, you know, if you're Jewish, you can pick out a Jewish movie in a second. And I, I can say, yeah, I guess you could. But I, I was really trying to find yeah, I don't the see... indications. I mean, the, the, the idea of it is that in the old days, a lot of places, sadly, you know, I, maybe... During the Depression or post-war, a lot of places would refuse uh, Jewish people to have entry into these clubs or these, these uh, whatever they are, getaways or whatever. They, they wouldn't let them stay. So a lot of these places in the Catskills would curtail to Jewish Americans who lived in the greater New York City area. So that became a big staple where these Jewish families would drive up for a week or two in the summertime and go stay at these resorts. And that's what I think they're supposed to be from Brooklyn in the movie, but Orbach is a doctor and he's bringing his family up to stay for the weekend. Yeah, yeah. I would think that they've done this before. You know, they've, they've, this isn't their first time going up there. Maybe it's a yearly thing. Yeah. I couldn't tell in the beginning. I always assumed that, but this time I couldn't tell if they had done this trip oh, because before of Weston? or they were just going this summer because the Orbach had taken care of Jack Weston. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who, was the who like had invited them up. That's true. Before. I didn't, I didn't think of that because he, he was, he says he could have been, it would have, if it wasn't for Jerry Orbach, he would have been dead because of something that was overlooked. And then Orbach, um, 
saw something when he had a routine checkup and saved his life. And you're right, he might have invited him up for like an all-expense-free trip. Because that's another reason why later on when Baby wants the $200, it's like, you know, in 1963, you don't really have ATMs. So he'll be like, I'll have the money for you. Uh, you know, by, by the by the afternoon, I'm like, where is he getting this money from? You know, on a Sunday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I you know? kind of had that question yeah. too. I mean, he like, must have brought a big roll up. You know, he's got like it is it is socky or in his mattress. He's got a big bankroll he brought with him, his folding money. Um, so you're right. I guess maybe um, uh, he was invited up by the the head of the hotel, who's played by Jack Weston, a great actor who you know people will know from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I think this is one of his last roles as the hotel keeper. Uh, or the head of this this place, and um, this movie, they say, um, it had a lot going against it when it was coming out because people just didn't think it was going to succeed. Like, uh, yeah, you know, they, a lot of things they really thought it was going to be a bomb. Well, first, she, El, uh, Eleanor Bergstein or Bergstein, Bergsten, yeah, <laughs> she, uh, Bergstein, she was a dancer, uh, and in and, Brooklyn, and also worked, Jewish, I think. But yeah, but uh, she. This is this, the story is basically loosely based on her experiences. Her nickname when she was younger was Baby. Her father was a doctor. Her father was a New York doctor, and they would go up to the uh, Catskill Resort for, like over the summer. And then I think she also eventually did some instructing at one or or, or more of them late. You know, a little bit later in life. But so much of her youth, her summers were going up to the Catskills. In this in this kind of fashion, and also participating in apparently dance contests where this quote unquote dirty dancing <laughs> was kind of a thing, um, and then she ended up writing a movie with Michael Douglas for uh, that Michael Douglas ended up starring in, and apparently there was a uh, there was kind of a an, a bit of an erotic dance scene or or a, you know. A, a, there was a dance scene that was in that script that got cut out. It was a little, it was a little too, um, yeah, it was a little, it's it, a movie from 1980s called It's My Turn. And I guess it was a little too uh, erotic. So they cut it down and that really pissed her off. Yeah, she got mad. And so she decided that she wanted to write a script where kind of this dirty dancing was the plot. Was right? Yeah, it was like the big part of it. But they had no, they had like real no idea. So she goes out. And has lunch uh, with with a female Hollywood producer that she'd hooked up with, and they're they're in their bouncing back and forth story ideas. And uh, she said she wants to do like a movie about like Latin dancing. And the woman's like, "Okay, well, tell me a little about yourself." And she basically reiterated what you just said. And she said she she grew up in Brooklyn, and she said that she was just one of those kids who would go across the tracks and go dirty dancing. And then that the the, the female producer's like, "Bang, that's your freaking title right there." So they basically had the title before they had the the plot of the movie yeah and uh i guess she really drew on her experiences as a child uh you know going up with her father or her family to these these catskill resorts and the the story evolved into this to this um interesting idea with a lot of other undertones in it and uh i guess swayze wasn't the first choice to be in this they wanted him to be first she when she decided to write the script bergstein bergstein start to write the script she decided to um you know, research it. So she she went and started talking to people, and so the character of Johnny Castle, who Patrick Swayze plays in the movie, was is kind of loosely based on uh, the anecdotes that this guy Michael Therese uh, would would tell her during uh, this research period. So he was a professional dancer, and he worked uh, 
in stage and film and stuff. And but in his youth, he worked as a dance instructor in the Catskills. Uh, so he would tell her all these stories about the, you know, and this was also when he was working. That's when Mambo was becoming a thing. So it was kind of all tied in. It was a very formative period of his life. He was young and he was a, a dance instructor in these things. But at the same time, like the Mambo was becoming this kind of suggestive, yeah. popular music. And, and so that, so his character is based on, uh, the Patrick Swayze character is kind of based on this guy, even though, uh, Eleanor didn't, know this guy growing up baby's kind of based on her and then it's just like this fictional story where those two and i'm sure she saw fictional figures characters. like that sure you know. sure and, and but the, he was originally going to be italian which adds origin- on to the yeah the jewish like it's almost the um it's almost like a a, a black white couple getting together it's almost that was i guess almost at the same time too like you know a jewish guy and a, a lot of jewish people who are very religious will say you can't marry anybody but a Jew, and then outside of that, yeah, the other yeah. town. Well, you I know, mean, a lot of that uh, cultural. Yeah, of of cultures stereo- are like that. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so I mean, if you're gonna play like the what if game, yeah, for Patrick Swayze, uh, they actually almost went with Billy Zane. Yeah, they liked Billy Zane. But they saw him in Back to the Future. They're like that kid <laughs> with the with the 3D glasses has got something. And they, I think they even did screen tests with him and Jennifer Grey, where they had to dance, and they didn't think like the chemistry was right or something. Yeah, because he could just it, keep up because the director Emil uh, Ardolino, who had won an Academy Award for a document a feature length documentary called He Makes Me Feel Like I Can Dance. He, the only thing he had directed up until that time. And he came in eighty three. And he lobbied for this script uh for the, to direct this movie. He got it. But he was very adamant that he didn't want it to be like flash dance where a uh a, a stand in would come in. Just like a body he, double yeah. would come in and do all the dance stuff. He so wanted he, he he wanted to make sure that he got that the that the starring actors could do the dancing yeah. themselves, and so they just felt like since the dancing was such a big part of it, that uh, Jennifer Grey and Billy Zane just didn't have kind of the right chemistry as dance partners. Um, also, they went to Val Kilmer. Yeah, he for, auditioned for this, to it for this part, and I think they might have even offered him the part reportedly, and he didn't think it was right for him, so he ended up turning it down. And then uh, people that. Uh, auditioned for the part of Baby. Sharon Stone apparently auditioned and really wanted the part, but they didn't. She didn't get it. And also, also Sarah Jessica Parker auditioned for the part, but uh, they ended up going with Jennifer Grey, uh, even though she was ten years older than Baby. But um, I think she passed. She looks young. She's coming off of Ferris Bueller's Day Off and stuff. But it's also because her dad's Joel Grey. She grew up getting professional dance lessons and stuff. I mean, yeah, the so, Broadway connection. So she ended up, you know, being a, a dancer. But she was she was kind of at the time uh, hesitant to take the role, and it really had to take Patrick Swayze to go convince her because they cast Swayze. First, they wanted that dark... I actually read... Actually, my research tells me something very different. Okay, so what I read was that, th- you know, they were looking for that dark, exotic look. They couldn't get it with um, Billy Zane because he couldn't keep up to the dancing so they hire Patrick Swayze they turn his character from Italian to Irish and then when they approach Jennifer Grey she's not she's worried about because they had a huge amount of tension I guess 
Swayze and her on yeah, yeah. Red Dawn. Well, that's what I read. Yeah, yeah. but so, she was cast, and she was like, "I don't want, Swayze. I don't want to work with Swayze." Oh, okay. I, I had heard that she was hesitant to take the role because of Swayze on board, and he, Swayze had to go talk to him. But listen, you know, this will be good for both of us. We should do it. We're both dancers. It'll work. But then, even when they started filming this movie, they had a lot of problems to a mm-hmm. certain extent where they were just getting in each other's faces and getting annoyed with each other and. And which uh, does not come across at all in the movie, I don't think. No, no, they you do know. a really great job in this movie. Yeah. Um, so then you, they also bring on uh, this really famous choreographer called uh, Kenny Ortega, who was trained under Gene Kelly. Uh, and he's a guy who really, <clears throat> uh, you know, nails everything down in here. And um, well, he worked with Gene Kelly on Xanadu. Yeah. And I think that's when they say he was trained under Gene Kelly, but he, but he worked very closely with Gene Kelly on Xanadu. So it wasn't like, Oh, he I didn't think go he to was, the school. I, I or think anything. he was too young to, you know, be with Gene Kelly in his prime. <laughs> oh no. But I mean, you know, who, who knows growing up if the, you know, yeah, yeah. Was one of these, you know, I know they have the Fred Astaire school of dancing. Yeah. Or if it was, Gene yeah, well, Kelly that's the did, thing with, you, you know, kind of do this research. There's all these, not necessarily conflicting stories, but different perspectives. On, yeah. And all these stories. And you got to so, just try to figure out what matches so up. So it was like he's work, he, he trained under Gene Kelly, but then when you read further, it was just like he worked with closely with Gene Kelly on Xanadu. So you don't really know what's the truth. And um, Ortega goes on to have a quite a big career after this. He ends up dancing. He ends up directing and choreograph, choreographing Newsies. He also does, I think he choreographs and directs the sequel to this or, or the semi-sequel, Havana Nights. And uh, he does some other things, but... He ends up having a bigger, you know, a, a, a bigger, um, uh, what do you call that? Career. Career, thank you. <laughs> uh, as, as the world turns. And uh, so uh, they get Orbach, they get everybody together, and like we said, they find the location, they go up there. But the, the, also the big issue here is that it, they start shooting in like late summer. Yeah. So they get there, and it's hot as balls, wherever the hell they are, shooting maybe the either the exteriors or the interiors. So they're having issues where some of the people are like, it's like getting to 105 degrees, and then if they're in these costumes, they say it's it's reported at some, they get, they get to like 120, they've clocked attempts. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing when you think about... Um you know, they're you know down they, south. There's and, these crazy yeah. stories about like Texas Chainsaw Massacre about how hot it got in that house, because on top of the heat outside, which 120 to, degrees in Texas outside uh, this this farmhouse. Yeah, but then you have to take into account that they're all inside without air conditioning with these hot lights, as well as on. in Texas they they blacked out the windows so that it would be a night sequence, and then put all these hot lights. And you got this a lot in the old days with. Um, with Technicolor, when they first got Technicolor in these big things, Technicolor was this big achievement. Oh, my God, we can shoot in color. But the issue was they needed a really high F-stop, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the, the film stock they were using was very slow, which means that they needed a lot of light to get an exposure. So then they'd have to use a lot of... Shitloads of fucking light. Yeah. And these lights were like, you know, we're talking the old days were like, you know, it was it's not like LEDs nowadays. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. like you have these huge, huge things that are like, you know three feet by two feet maybe and they're hanging and you have all these lights so you know it was uh and then you're in a you're on a sound stage that might not be air conditioned a lot of times in the old days that's why people that's why you know cagney helped build a union because these people were dropping you know it was getting very exhausting if you're doing a dance sequence and you you know working 12 hours a day you yeah, know yeah. so that was that became a big issue in hollywood like we're alluding to so here they're they, down they're down the south in the summer it's hot as balls and they're inside 
filming under hot lights and so it would get like you know well over 100 degrees inside and if you notice there's a lot of elderly people yeah in the film because they're playing the like the elder people that go to the resort so people were fucking passing out this one woman paula truman she passed out and uh she needed to go to the emergency room to be treated for dehydration swayze also had to go to the emergency room at some point but also because he was doing all his own yeah he's doing all his own stunts. stunts and we alluded to the knee injury earlier from his football career i wonder if that's the same thing yeah, he he wanted he insisted in doing his, all his own stunts. So there's a part where he's on the log, and when you see that long shot at the end of the scene, they're pretty high up. Yeah, you know. So I guess he kept falling off of that, and he ended up banging his knee up so bad he had to go to the emergency room to, to, to for them to drain some of the water off of it. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, but then since this is a 44 day shoot, uh, which is pretty quick, they're only I think their they, their budget's like what six million on the thing or something like that. Something like five or six. Five, yeah, five or six million. Very low budget for the time because the typical movie at that time was about twelve. Yeah. Uh, so because of budgetary reasons, it was a very it was a relatively quick shoot. Plus, they only had about two weeks to rehearse, so to learn all that dancing and stuff, incredible. They, they very well could have been you know working on that when they weren't shooting during production obviously which means Um, it's a grueling schedule for them yeah but uh that is still pretty impressive considering how important all the dancing is for this movie to really start getting it down for in only two weeks so they end up going to uh since they film into late summer into the fall and autumn they end up running off schedule they run up running a little over schedule so they go from the hot balls hot august summer into Oct- into the fall, yeah, the, the middle of October. So a lot of like the leaves in the in in, in the in the uh, woods scenes, in the, the forest scenes, yeah. they had to actually spray paint green because the leaves were starting to turn. And I think they talk about that's in the log sequence, maybe the that log you- scene, and then when they're practicing the lift in the water is yeah. actually in the autumn, which. Realistically, it does. It's not like the Northeast. It doesn't get as cold it down get there. Cold, but yeah. it's still when you're going to be in a lake for in the middle of autumn. Uh, in the middle of autumn, it yeah. got really f- cold. And Swayze says it was hyperthermically cold, where he said it was so cold that they. That's why they didn't even shoot close-ups because their lips were blue and they couldn't. And he said, like you know, Jennifer Grey doesn't weigh a lot, but if you're doing that every day, you're deadlifting her all day. Yeah, yeah. He's like, by the time he got out, he couldn't walk. You know, he, he was just physically exhausted. You know, so. Uh, you know they're they're really killing themselves to a certain extent. You know, getting this done, but they 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 got they got all that done. Oh, they were young and hungry. Yeah, yeah, and that's what exactly that's what Jennifer Gray said. She said like you know uh, she probably wouldn't have done it unless she was young and hungry. And a lot of people had doubts because, as we said, that they. A lot of people didn't think it would be done because uh, there's just so much against it, as we'll, we can get to a little later. Um, they offered uh, we talked about the what if game. They offered Doctor Ruth. The part as the one of the elder as the female the elderly couple who are the uh, pickpocketers, yeah, and she accepted. But then when she realized that the, the she was the, a thief, yeah, the she decided not to do it. And so. Joel Gray, Jennifer Gray's dad, was going to play the husband, her husband, and Doctor Ruth's husband in the in the movie. That would have been great. You know, have a little have a little cameo of the two of them playing. I mean, but he would have played had to play a little elderier. Yeah, yeah. You know, he take the yellow face off of Remo and put on <laughs> you know elder face. Um, and a lot of the stuff too. They talk about that. Uh, as as tight of a schedule they were on, they they like to just let the camera roll and ad lib. Yeah. So you have a lot of scenes that they actually kept in the movie that were a lot of ad libbed, where you have like um, the sequence with them with the record player and they're on the floor, they're and, crawling you know, around on the floor. That was the, apparently they were just kind of doing that in like waiting to yeah. start. And that's amazing because you look at the shot how they you know the the, the it's 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 a two shot. I mean they they have yeah, singles yeah. of both of them. I wonder you know, that, but that very well could be where. 
you know, one of those situations, like, you know, they always say, like, with the Scorsese movies, that they're improvisation. But in the, the way Scorsese works is it's all improv, but it's improv in rehearsal. Yeah. And then they rewrite the script based on the things they like from that improvisation. So there very well could be a situation with the crawling around the floor where they saw it, they liked it, and then they were like, you know what, let's do that. Well, it, and then they film it, or they could have done like the first wide take of them doing it and been like, you know, we like that so much. Now let's just cover it. And then, yeah, and make sure that it works. They do know that that song backwards and forward, um, baby. What's yeah, the, yeah. The, I forget the name of the don't. Let me the con, the contour song maybe. Uh, but that that was improv. The 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 you talk about the two of them getting a little um, on each other's nerves. This the scene, the montage of him touching her shoulder, her her arm. She yeah, like laughing. going down her arm onto her chest, and she keeps on laughing because it tickles. And yeah. apparently, that actually that what you're seeing there actually happened. They were doing the take after take, and she kept on laughing because it tickled. And kind of the frustration and the irritation that you see on Patrick Swayze's face is. The actual yeah. frustration and irritation that he was having as an actor trying to get through the scene. And then they said that they uh, they end up stating that that's probably the uh, the most honest moment in the movie because it shows, not only does it, you know, it's a real reaction, but it also shows the two of them, you know, him being annoyed as the character yeah. trying to get her to, to do it. It's, it's such an amazing idea because we're supposed to believe prior to this she has no kind of really dancing experience yeah you know i mean she's even awkward when she's trying to move her hips you know what i mean <laughs> yeah that kind yeah. of whole thing but then he's a hell of a teacher that johnny yeah Castle. and then it's i i think i mean how long is it they're only coming up for like a week right they're not up for like the whole month i guess you know, you know it's I, it's hard because i always to me i was even i was like it feels like it's a summer right yeah because <laughs> i was like let's do this movie at the beginning of the summer because they must get they must drive there in june yeah and then spend like two months there that was like my memory of it you know yeah. but i haven't seen this movie in well over a decade so uh so, that, so that's why we're doing it now and not in august <laughs> But it turns out it seems like they only go up there for about a week. Because even at the end, when Orbach's all pissed off at Baby, he's like, you know what, let's leave so we can beat Sunday traffic. Yeah, because it's, and then they even say, like, Labor Day is here, Labor Day weekend, so that, that they must be up for that week. And this movie ends up coming out on August the 21st of 87, so we're two months shy of it hitting the 30th anniversary. But we're getting it in early for when people have that 30th anniversary <laughs> resurgence. Um, so, yeah, he, they must be only up there for, like, a week or so. And, you know, it really goes to back then... Like, I remember being little, uh, especially when I lived in New Haven, and uh, Jesus, I, was, I only lived there until I was age seven, and I, we, talk, we touched on this a little bit when they raised the Titanic cast. I can remember leaving the house and like, just going and playing with the friends in the oh, block, yeah. and my parents not even caring where the hell I was. Yeah, you know, yeah. And I had to be six at the time, or five, in 1985 yeah. or 84. So I guess my first reaction to see her just effing off and going around and them not knowing where she is is like, oh, that wouldn't happen. They want to know where she is. But then again... They could be doing their own thing. I know. We were, you know, like you we said, were doing the we same were thing. little kids. And, and we were like, yeah, five or six, and know, I'm going to play on the street. When I was five or six, seven, I lived in in Philadelphia. So I lived in, you know, not the most urban part of Philadelphia, but it was still was a city. I it mean, wasn't the suburbs. It was, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was more like what Brooklyn is like or uh, Queens, you know, more like an outer borough. So we lived in like a house, but it was like a row house yeah. kind of thing where we shared a wall with like another family. <laughs> um, but so it was semi-urban, and I would just get on my bike and ride around. And yeah, I mean, leave. You know, my grandparents were elderly. I would just like bye, and I'd come back. But it was that was that was it, and then I, it's and just it such a different world dark. now. 
Yeah. You know, I would never, I mean, that's also for us pre, I remember when I was phasing out of riding my bike, like my Huffy and stuff, getting into like middle school and high school, that was when they started to just start pushing like people wearing like uh, helmets and pads. And I was like, you're a, you're a stupid if you're going to wear that stuff, you know. <laughs> but now it's like, you yeah. know, you don't see, I don't see any kids riding without it. And it's almost become like a style. No, they don't, I it mean, doesn't look so. Look, we could talk about, yeah. but we do sometimes get into this. Of how, how the kids we were... don't go out and play anymore. My brother tells me this. He's like, you know, he doesn't. The kids don't go out and play. You set up play dates, and then you go, you take them over. And that's true. You, but but there's no like later, ma. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's twofold because be back when the street lights come on. <laughs> All right yeah, for dinner. I mean, you. I guess you have one half that they're they're at home watching TV and just playing video games, but then the other half is do you trust the kid leaving the house and going to the local yeah. park or whatever. You know, and then also the third thing is: Do kids even want to go play outside and play football when they can just Skype their friend? Or do they want to go and dirty dance? And go with... dirty dance and like that. So you get the, you get her. She. We have the first night they're there, and like I said, we have. Like well, look, the, she's a sixteen-year-old girl. She's she's very impressionable. <laughs> no, but like she's uh, up at a at a at a Catskills resort, which is primarily filled with elderly people. Yeah. You know, and then like her sister's a little bit older, uh, as hot as balls. I guess. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was like, I actually think the sister's really. Yeah, hot. I didn't realize. I, I mean, Jesus, I don't want to sound in any way like a like a dude, but like I didn't really realize till the end of the movie when she's like in the bikini scene, like Jesus, Machi <laughs> Machi. Yeah, oh, her and I had a big crush. This go around on Vivian, the uh, the older lady that was yeah, yeah. She, she's, she's another. Old. I was like, I, I no wonder why Patrick's <laughs> the sways is falling for every year because she's not. I could if I did the movie now, I would cast that girl a little uglier. So you, you know, so maybe I mean, I guess he was feeling like he's being like abused by them. So, but it's not like he's being you forced. Cast who uglier? The maybe wife? no, maybe Vivian, the older. Remember the the question of the the the, the woman who was whose husband only comes up on yeah, the weekend and he to plays play cards. The, yeah. Yeah, well, originally She's, the woman that plays yes, let's get into this. The woman that plays baby's mom in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Kelly Bishop, who actually, for all the Stern fans out there, because we discovered that we do have some, Stern, some Stern yeah. listeners, because when I did the Richard Christie, we had a good response in terms of people telling me they were excited about that. Kelly Bishop, who plays Baby's Mom in this, plays Howard's mom, Ray Stern, in the movie Private Parts. Yeah. But originally, she was supposed to play that Vivian character that you're talking about. Yeah, the, the kind of promiscuous... Uh, Wife, who what do they, they? They Jack Weston has a name for her. I forget what they call it, like uh, weekend or bungalow girls. Because yeah, what happens yeah. is the husband's so well off, she goes up and stays maybe for like, the whole summer. Yeah, up there. for like the whole summer, and the husband only comes, comes up, up on, on the weekend. So she's got like you know, you know Monday through Friday, probably maybe the Friday night the husband might come up. Yeah, and and she looked to even trying to get some action while the husband was there because yeah, the husband's yeah. gonna have an all night card game. So uh, and it looks pretty commonplace. And I'm not saying the husband knew about it, but. It seems like back then that was almost, it's almost like Mrs. Robinson in the graduate. Yeah, yeah. Like you have these issues with people who will go have an affair. Who cares? Because it's just a, it's yeah, a, it's yeah. a, it's a just one of those things. <laughs> just one of those. But so the, the baby's the woman that plays baby's mom yes. was supposed to play that character, but then the woman that was hired to play baby's mom got sick during the first week of filming. Yeah. And so what they ended up doing... They, they shifted everybody. Shifted. They called an audible. Yeah. They took some players off the bench. <laughs> put uh, uh, Kelly Bishop in the char- in the part of uh, Baby's mom and then took the assistant choreographer... Took, uh, yeah, to Ortega. 
uh, and gave her a part in the movie. And, and gave her, and so that. she's very good looking in my personal opinion. Oh yeah, she's woman. very sexy. Yeah, very sexy. She's got everything working out for her. And uh, I guess if you look really hard on the drive up in the in the opening shots of Baby talking about it was 1963, and you can see like blonde hair in the front seat. Yeah, and that's the mother, the that's original, the original actress, the original actress. So. Uh, why, why are we all talking? Oh, because so this woman we're here. We're talking about <laughs> how hot, hot people are. are yeah. for, from a guy's perspective. <laughs> so your baby's 16. You're right. So she goes up there and it's basically. But my point is. Uh, elderly people. What are. I was getting is like she's a 16-year-old girl and the there's not a age. whole lot for her to do. Yeah. You know, so she just wanders around. Yeah. And the help is her age who were up there. But it's a, a, a class distinction, which is interesting because like Swayze says, these guys probably don't have, you know, in, in the. During the year, they're probably living like in like you know walk up apartments in the city. You yeah, know, yeah. they're they're scraping to eat. The the one girl who has who gets pregnant, she at one time was a rock cat. You know, so they're surviving and they they really probably thrive on this summer work. You yeah, know? well, you know, you see a lot of that in summer towns. Yeah, you know, people that live in a summer town, even overseas, they come over. You yeah. know, they'll come. Yeah, they'll the English come, or Irish will come here and work for the season, and then yeah, go they'll back. work in like a in like a beach town. For for the summer, you know, save up money, buy a bunch of jeans. <laughs> yeah, go, go back over. <laughs> go back over, sell the jeans. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you see that a lot in beach town, like resort-type towns, yeah. which is like if you have somebody that lives there all year, they basically work from June to maybe early September, and then they go on an unemployment. Yeah. From September till June. And so they basically live off, for the most part, all the money they made in that summer. They just work their asses off for three or four months, yeah. save up, and then they live off that money for the rest and of you the year. And you know, get a lot of fathers who do that, like with trucking or like a pipeline. You go away for a couple months, you know, you make a shitload of money, you come back and stuff like that. So uh, you see this big class distinction there where you have... Um, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's there's a lot going on in this movie. Um, you know, getting... I don't know if are you ready to get past like the making of stuff? Yeah, yeah, you know, right yeah. Because, I mean, we like, could throw I, out a little other, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, as other we go things. along, yeah, exactly pop up. But um, I thoroughly enjoyed watching this. I did too. Maybe that's the reason why I was shoved into this, this stucco ceiling. <laughs> we got all worked up. Yeah, you know, because we had, um, you know, and it it also. Uh, I mean, I maybe our audience will be surprised by this, but I was actually myself surprised at how good the. The script in the movie was yeah, and yeah. works to a sense where, like, yeah, I can see why this became the the woman, the the movie of choice for a whole generation of young girls all yeah, over the sure. world. I mean, it's like a perfect coming of age. I mean, story. It, it, ha- it deals with you uh, being like a you know like a late ad- adolescence where you're, you're kind of like you you feel a little um, uh, insecure in yourself, and you're going, you're hanging out with older people who are. Who are maybe up from the other side of the tracks, and there's a class issue. Sure, you, you have had like that Romeo and Juliet thing going on. You have the issues with the father. You know, she has a big argument, and the the, the, the father daughter relationship is a big part in this too. The sister, and then at the end of it, you and then let's add in the dance and the soundtrack, and then at the yeah, end yeah. you have this where she's able to, you know, she does it, and she everyone's yeah, clapping yeah. at well, the th- end. Yeah, I mean, I think know? what you were getting at was that uh, before where we got a little bit sidetracked is that. Even the studio that did it, which was a new studio, they you know this was their first feature film that they were producing. Everybody after they saw it 
in like rough cut stage or whatever. At some point, everybody decided like this movie is awful. Yeah, it's gonna flop. It tested too that way too. They showed test audiences and test audiences like hated half it. like you know some like huge percentage of the audience didn't even understand that the uh, the the. Uh, the girl was pregnant? Yeah. The, the, the whole pregnant aspect? The Penny character was pregnant? Well, they that, didn't understand that? So that is, and as a child, yeah, I, mean, exactly. I didn't understand it either. But uh, so everybody just thought this movie was going to flop. So the studio was that Because they, they never mentioned pregnant or abortion, I think. Or those, yeah, yeah. those two words are never mentioned. Yeah, it's in all that. just kind of implied. And uh, that is a issue that um, that whole sequence... Uh, I don't mean to stop you down, but this is also but I think movie. we should get it. That's a big part of it. I think we should kind of have a discussion specifically about that okay. if you want to hold off on Yeah, yeah let's hold off. And we'll swing yeah. back around to it because I think it's a very important discussion. I'll, I'll put my blink around and we'll get back on the highway. <laughs> okay. uh, but the point is, and even the studio was like, this movie's blows. They had been working in video distribution, like VHS distribution to like, we'll put it in the theater for a week and then we'll just throw this baby out on video. Yeah. But then it ended up becoming this huge phenomenon because... And Bergstein was like, you know, I was lucky that it was even going to get seen, be seen the light of day yeah, and yeah. I was getting screamed at. And you had this big advertiser, Clearasil, hooked up with them because Clearasil is like, oh, you're marketing to our age group for acne. We're going to put, you know, a whole bunch of money into it. But then when they, they tested the movie and they saw the whole subplot like, of the pregnancy. Of the, yeah, of like the abortion They're stuff, like, take though. this shit out. And <laughs> Bergstein, to her credit, was like, no, that's a whole yeah, that's central a, part of a plot. part of the movie. So they were expecting it to flop. But so Clearasil was like, see you then. And they, yeah, they, yeah. they left and they, t- they backed out and took their money. Their, their, their yeah, ad, they their pulled ad out. dollars out. Uh but what everybody didn't anticipate was that this movie wasn't strictly appealing to young girl to teenage girls all uh, the entire generation of people that grew up doing this yeah you know in the 60s yeah, like the people 50s and 60s you know, the people that were there when they were teenagers in 1963 like they fell in love with it so it ended up becoming where they were expecting that this was going to be a big teen romance movie it ended up like a John Hughes or something. Yeah, well, you know, you know, minus the the kind of comedies, that yeah, you yeah, think yeah, of, yeah, but like a very like a serious but coming of age teenage girl movie. They were they were banking on that audience, and and they did find that audience. But what they weren't expecting was that it spanned the parents. Yeah, you that know, it, it, their parents fell in love and, with it and, too. And then you also got repeated. They would go back to the cinema to see it, and it quickly, you know skyrocketed and it ended up making 214 million uh, off of 6 million yeah, you know yeah. and then we, you said that the company that was really heavy into video distribution when this hit video this was the number one selling video of all time when it came out and then the soundtrack also hit them by surprise and then it went on severe back order and they didn't have enough to, to, to for the soundtrack and then it was so popular that they even d- d- uh, put out a second soundtrack called like More Dirty Dancing with other songs that were in the original movie that they omitted off the first soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. And I also think that the, the gentleman who they brought in to do the um, the soundtrack work on this film, who had also, he'd worked with Three Dog Knight and John Lennon to do, um, what do you call it? Um, to do like songs and stuff like that. He had said that, um, uh, his name is Jimmy Inner, I-E-N-N-E-R. He was the music supervisor. There was an idea at the time where they were going to just uh, they had mo- songs that they had rec- that they had used in the filming, but then they were going to maybe put new songs in. But his idea was no, let's just get all the rights to the songs you used in the in the shooting of yeah. it, all these fifties and sixties classics, and then 
you know, use that as the majority of the soundtrack, and then he added in some of the '80s songs, and yeah, it was yeah. it was uh, cinematic gold, or it was it was genius. Yeah, I mean, it is you know? weird to watch it now. There are some people that get nitpicky. That doesn't bother me so much. That like a period movie. This is me. This is a big, shouldn't have yeah, contemporary music. And this was a movie that I watched where my issue with the biggest thing I see is like, say, you're taking Glorious Bastards, and you have him have a David Bowie song in a World War II movie, which is odd for me, or. In the 60s and 70s, when you have like those folk ballads at the beginning of a of a movie where it's like you know a western or something, and it's clearly like a 60s like yeah. you know like love or what do you call that like um, what's that uh, soft rock yeah. you know that's what I have. But then when you have this movie, I was watching it and I thought to myself, you know, I have this issue in other movies, but it's not bothering me so much here because it's not so blatant. I guess yeah, like the like uh, it does turn out to be that like. Uh, the last song, Time of My Life, or yeah. whatever it is, ends up being like the longest 45, like ever. Because they, you so, see, they put it on and it's just like a little 45. But it's long. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long play, 45. <laughs> yeah, somehow they took like, it only holds about two and a half to three minutes worth yeah. of music. Last like good like yeah. seven minutes. They had two of them going back to back. Some guy was <laughs> the flip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Seamlessly. <laughs> Go. You know, like, uh, what's the, the Don McLean? Uh, uh, American, American Pie, Pie yeah. yeah. That was when that was on forty five. You had to flip it to hear the rest of the song. That's, That's how, how long, long the song yeah, was. Yeah. But instead of doing like a cut version, yeah. where they made like a three minute version, you literally had to flip the. the That's the amazing. And then you just like my bye, American Pie, you know. But it, it's amazing that the the eighties, the, the, the contemporary songs they use in the movie, like "She's Like the Wind," which I think is such a good song that Swayze sings. Well, he wrote it. Um, he, yeah, he co-wrote it with another girl for, um, they were going to use it for another movie and they didn't end up using it for another yeah, movie. Yeah, they, they wrote it for Grand View USA from 1984, which has him and, uh, it reunites him and C. Thomas Howell and also Jamie Lee Curtis and he wrote it for that and they didn't use it. So they end up, um, what's his face? The music supervisor, Jimmy, um, Inner that Inner, I said, Heiner, who yeah, knows? he, it's, he, he, uh, said, yeah, let's get, let's get that. And we'll uh, we'll record that. And then um, hungry eyes, and then like you said, the time of my life. Those songs to me, for some reason, like they don't really. Maybe because they're not like when when uh, she's like the wind comes up. Yeah. It's like near the end of the movie, and it's like it's trying to set a mood, and he's leaving, and it's kind of like oh, it kind of works, and you're like you're you're in this you're in the yeah, story, yeah, and you're like yeah. almost crying like he's leaving, and you know, and, but then. When uh, time in my life comes, like that that's di- almost it's sounds, yeah. I mean, it's also like it's supposed to be. It, they're the listening song. to it, yeah. In the movie. And Jack Weston's like, "You got sheet music for this stuff?" And I and that's another thing that that's one of the reasons why they got what's the Bill Bill Med- Melody Medley the oh, guy from the Righteous Brothers, yeah, was like a, because he's he was a star during that era, of, yeah, yeah, because they were coming music. back. And that's that's another thing where you take eighty seven or eighty six is what Top Gun. You have the, isn't the Righteous Brothers? Is that you know you've lost that loving feeling? Yeah, that's yeah. another. That's another one. Like you have all these movies putting out these early songs, like lip syncing or karaoke version. You know, sure. Um, so that's another thing. That at the end of the movie, it almost gives you hope because Jack Weston. I thought that is almost like, oh, what? Maybe this isn't the end. Maybe we can conform and start making it a little <laughs> we more. We have a dirty dance. <laughs> we gotta we gotta start doing some. Sixty four is gonna be crazy. Yeah, it's gonna be. We're gonna have all the. <laughs> All the hip shaking you can imagine, as long as you have the sheet music to this, Tito. You know, and you can get rid of some of your big band, too. I don't need to pay all them. Um, 
But then, sadly, we know the fate that a lot of these places end up closing. Yeah, but yeah. the soundtrack was so big, and they talk about the time of my life is they were looking for a song to have, and this was literally the last tape they listened to. It was yeah, an audition yeah. tape. Literally, they picked it up. Yeah, put basically, it in. this kind of thing is like songwriters. They end up making these demos, and then they send them to record companies and stuff. Like, uh, like a Virgin, for instance, is a very famous one where. Uh, there's a thing in the song that sounds like she's ad-libbing a line. You know, she throws a line out and like a virgin, but that was actually on the demo. These two, if you listen to the demo, it's like these two like geeky white guys singing like at the piano like a virgin because they wrote it. Yeah, yeah. So you, the, you... Touched for the very <laughs> first time. Ooh. Like over her, her, her. They had to bring her voice up a little bit too, I think. So they no, that's Lucky Star. I'm so sorry. they write these songs and the songwriters write these songs and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, obviously when they were listening to this, they didn't, they weren't listening to the finished product. They were listening to songwriters sending them demos. And then the last one in a stack of demos that they were listening to was this song. And this, they decided to choose it. Yeah. Um, and they ended up doing it. And, and it was sung by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warrens and. Jesus, I remember that that thing lived for, you know. I mean, it's it's now they have you know. There's commercials where they've kind of re, re- yeah. Well, then like the Black Eyed Peas kind of like do part of it. Yeah, as part of a song. They've kind of read it, so it's it's become almost like part of the American Americana. This song, how big it okay, is for me. I have a lot of feelings about the movie itself, but since we're talking about the soundtrack, I think I should talk about my feelings of the soundtrack, okay. my personal experience with the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, I don't. I didn't see this movie at the movies, but I did see it when I was young. I never disliked this movie. I, I, like we said, there are, there are certainly things in it that I certainly didn't understand. As or a didn't kid. it real appeal to you as a you know like that's what yeah. my my issue. I didn't I didn't dislike it, but it was like in '87. I'm into like, yeah yeah, you know, but so like much. I didn't understand the abortion subplot. Well, I saw that in I saw this in college. I think with a girlfriend, and I didn't even I don't think fully. Maybe I wasn't paying attention, but if you're not paying, you may completely. She's sick, but what's you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because yeah. well, guys are like, Robbie Duder gave her the flu? Yeah, what's, yeah, is she, she going to be okay? <laughs> Maybe she should stay hydrated. <laughs> uh, but circa 80, 88, my, um, my mom got remarried. And we were going to move, and we moved to, from Philadelphia to Albany, New York. And I remember we went to a, the mall in Philadelphia and we bought this soundtrack on audio cassette my mom and i and i remember uh it was that we were getting ready to move my stepdad rob was already up in albany because he worked for the state so he was up there and so my mom and i were gonna drive to albany by ourselves we said goodbye to my grandparents who lived in philadelphia about a block and a half away from us so i grew up where like my grandparents were just like parents to me of course uh and they had that little um we learned about the hope they had a little hotel but that was in jersey they had a little hotel uh it's so weird that we both learn so much now about each other (laughs) motel yeah when i when i grew up in jersey shore beach town they were from philadelphia but they would go down just like this they would go but they would go down to wildwood new jersey for the summer they had a little motel And that's where your grandfather would play a lot too right Uh, yeah atlantic city yeah sometimes around uh, the circuit So I just remember, and I didn't really even think about it until recently um, when we started talking about doing this movie, but I remember we got in the car, we said goodbye to my grandparents, and we started to drive to New York, and we didn't even get very far. 
and uh, my mom started crying. And she was like, "This is the big move, then." Yeah, from you were moving Philly to Albany. And I had only ever lived in this house, Um, but my mom had this weird feeling that she was like never going to see her parents again. I mean, they were old. I think she was afraid something was going to happen to them. And um, it's hard. We had the we had the pull over. Yeah, and uh, I remember it's just a. So the soundtrack has a very like weird bittersweet thing for me because then when we drove to Albany for five and a half hours, we listened to this tape. Just t- turn it over. Jess, yeah. it would just. <laughs> but I mean, I, over and over again for five and a half hours, all the way up, and we'd sing along to. So I was to say, I know that it was a sad or like your mom was had a lot of apprehension because she's moving away from her parents to like you know five or six hours away, but. I guess were there elements of like since it's, an, it's older songs, where you guys were singing away, and it was kind of yeah, like a, yeah. But it was the whole you know, experience was just yeah. like I said, bittersweet. I was leaving my grandparents, who like I said were like parents to me. I had never lived anywhere else, so it was kind of sc- moving out of your city, scary a little bit. Yeah, um, moving to a new place. I don't even think I was that into Rob yet, my stepdad. Yeah. I mean, eventually, like my stepdad's like the greatest fucking guy ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, he's like he's really like. My father to me is my best, he's one of my best friends. Yeah. Uh, but I think when I was little, there was still a little bit of like, I wasn't into that. And, uh, but then I do, so there's like, there is like a nice memory of driving and singing along with my mom and listening to the soundtrack on the way up. But then there's this like kind of, she'd bitter, like to win. <laughs> bitter, bitter yeah. part of it, you know? Yeah, of course. And, uh, well, you haven't even thought of that. I, you know, it was like a the memory came back to me when we talked about doing this movie and then um, this has been a request for a while for for female especially my wife (laughs) I've been like you're gonna you know women will love this Uh, so it's like it it like occurred to me like the memory kind of came back like oh yeah that story but then it wasn't until we were watching it where like I really started thinking about it um, which made one, I was very emotional during the movie watching it just in general. I didn't want like, to acknowledge it. Like I did get kind of like the end. I, I'll bet I got a little teary. I know. And then, uh, but then there was this whole other thing that was coming back to me, hearing these songs and having that memory too. So this, this viewing was a bit of like a little bit of a emotional roller coaster for me. Walk down memory lane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a little bit personal, but also it's really, like you said, it's a, it's a, surprisingly really well executed film i mean it's a it's a good script they're all really great in it jerry orbach's great in it the, the, the scenes between her and like i felt very emotional during those scenes where, with her and him yeah i feel really bad because, for him it, because set, like, it really sets up like that they have like this perfect father-daughter relationship and, and then, he's she's like daddy's little girl and then yeah. you, get, you get that too that there is that rival rivalry between the sisters yeah that the sister's gonna go make it with the other dude just because she wants some sort of attention that she feels like maybe she's not getting as much from her dad you know and which makes like that moment after swayze leaves when she's like getting dressed and her sister comes over she's like i'm gonna fix yeah and they both like like, even i remember even in my youth having that moment be kind of powerful like touching. Uh, maybe it's because i have an older brother yeah uh, but they're finally like bonding they're yeah that like, moment assholes. of like you see like she's not a cunt yeah yeah <laughs> you know what i mean like they just they're they're sisters so they there's like you know that rivalry there's friction but ultimately they do, they do love each other and she loves her uh, so i even remember i remember even that moment kind of ringing true to me even in past viewings when i was a lot younger 
Uh, but you know, the, all the stuff where basically we're like Orbach sitting outside, like staring at. Oh, him. very Godfather too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, where he's looking out over the lake in silhouette. <laughs> but then she says whatever she says, and that's really. A, and then you see Orbach get kind of teary. Yeah, she leaves, and I, see, I think the play version I saw they reconcile right there because they're strapped for time. But in this movie, I didn't. I didn't remember she leaves, and he kind of breaks down there. Yeah, that's yeah. really powerful for like a for a, a guy actor. Yeah. Well, or, now you know, that we're getting older, you know, I think. What, we can identify with it? Well, yeah, well, we don't have kids, but yeah. I think we, when you get older, I think you start to empathize with your parents and kind of sympathize to, with them, too, about, like, you start to, just with maturity and with experience and age, you start to obviously see the whole world and your whole life kind of in a different point of view, you know? Even yeah. when we're talking with... Uh, when I was talking with Patrick on Teen Wolf, and I was just like, oh, "Man, I was such a dick." Like I looked back, and you said that. You said, "I don't know how Dion put up with me." <laughs> luckily, I, the only thing I'll say for the record is, luckily, I wasn't. Infl- I wasn't inflicted with that kind of psychosis. Where I was, because you went through, you hated cigarettes and you hated. Me. There's yeah, all these I was. Things. I was such an asshole, man. You I, know, but. You know, that, but that's it's the thing. It's, yeah, I just you, I was like, he'll change. Don't, don't worry. I'm just like, it's all right, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you come, uh, you know, with with. Uh, with age comes great uh, responsibility. With, with, <laughs> with age does come great. Great, no, great respect. <laughs> great retrospective. <laughs> um, and so I don't think that moment of Orbach would ring true. To, would ring uh, personal with us as kids. But now as we get a, yeah. older and we, we start to, especially from his point of view, you look at like you know he gives her a two hundred dollar two fifty back in sixty three. That like, was that was when two hundred fifty dollars was worth two hundred fifty. Yeah, I mean that was like I, maybe close to like a thousand dollars. I mean it's a shitload yeah, of money, yeah. and, and surprising to me that their relationship is that good. Where yeah, he's yeah. like, mm-hmm. you don't have to ask me. And I'm so uh, you know. Please forgive me for even questioning it. I'll give it to you. But then it's so heartbreaking for him when he goes over there. He immediately realizes. Like, that's what my money paid for. Yeah, and he realized. And that's really bad, too, because that's almost, for him, like the Hippocratic Oath. Well, he'll help anybody, but, you know, a doctor's not supposed to do things like that. So he kind of vicariously almost contributed to having her almost yeah, die from yeah. an abortion. It's like, you know, what are you getting me into unknowingly? And then... Yeah. Him still being true as a doctor to help somebody in as a father goes, deals with it. But then you could see why he's so let down. It's like, you know, what, you know, and then also from his point of view, like, look who she's hanging out with. Yeah. Does this mean she's fucking too? You know what I mean? She thinks Johnny Castle's the one that knocked her up. Yeah. And she's, and now my daughter's hanging out with Johnny Castle. And it's like, you know, and then I'm surprised. I love that his name is Johnny Castle. (laughs) (laughs) No relation to Frank, Frank Castle, uh, um, Punisher. Um, but, like, I'm surprised that after that, that uh, uh, Orbach doesn't keep her on a short leash. And, like, you're not going fucking anywhere near that. I mean, he says that to her, but she's yeah, still yeah. able, I'm going to play charades. And she's, you know, she's over, you know, sleeping with yeah. uh, uh, Swayze. Yeah. Well, you know, you that know, week is so long. I know. It's, there's so much to do when it's <laughs> raining out. And, you know, and that's, a, um, I mean, I guess there's all the, we can get into all that, too, where, like, they had a longer sex scene with She's Like the Window Over It, where I guess... You, she, she went topless, but they cut that out. Jennifer Gray, mm-hmm. they cut that down. And there's, um, there's a scene where like she's in a bra that they cut down. And I, and I guess in the nineteen or either ninety seven or two thousand seven reiterations of these movies, they put these deleted scenes in. Except the nude scene hasn't shown up anywhere. But they either, I guess, if you went and saw this in the theaters in nineteen ninety seven, they added the 
deleted scenes into the movie, oh, which yeah. would have been cool. But then if you got a video or a DVD copy, they had the deleted scenes as a special feature. You could yeah. see this stuff. So, But Orbach, it, that's why, I mean, I'm a huge Orbach fan, and that's why it was like a big fun for us to do Beauty and the Beast. And I love Law and Order and all that stuff. So it's like, it is a great, like, I've always just remembered him as the dad in this. Like, yeah, it's just yeah. a throwaway role, you know. It's kind of like Jack Weston in this movie. He's just yeah, playing yeah. Jack Weston. But when you, like you're saying, we watch it again, there's so much more nuance. He's such an important character. You know? Even though he's not in, he doesn't get as much screen time yeah. as, you know, Swayze and Jennifer Grey. He is certainly like the third lead yeah. in this movie. And he was the one, the original cast to be, they thought he'd be the only person in it. Yeah. Like he was this Broadway guy who was going to be the guy that they would headline. Uh, but he does a great job. Like the, the their relationship is... They do. It's a. It's really beautifully executed in terms of setting up that trust. Yeah, she's never done anything wrong. She's going to change the world. She's going to, you know, she's going to join the Peace Corps. Uh, yeah, she's, she's, she's the, looking. She's, at... the, she's the. She's the baby, literally, and and with namesake. You know, um, he trusts her so much to just give her the money, uh, and then kind of the disappointment it's and just fear a slap in the face. Yeah, and not just disappointment in her, but I think you're right. Like fear. That she her as a dad, up. you know, like what is she, that she's getting into stuff and that she's lying to me. She's hanging out with all these people and, you know, the, the, this the, this crowd that does dirty dancing. Who knows what, what the hell else they're up to, you know. At <laughs> you night. know, it's, that's the, it's you know. a scary being a parent. I can only imagine is like the most terrifying thing. Especially nowadays, too. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure it always has been, of course. But um, and then I think that makes it for so much better of a payoff than at the end. Yeah. How they, they fit that exposition in so beautifully where he's going to go, he's giving them the guys. <laughs> so, the, I mean, the, I mean, it's slightly crowbarred in. Yeah, but, yeah but it could be worse. It could have been a lot more, you know. Where Rob, he's going to give Robbie, who's the waiter, who the older sister, you know. Was almost going to uh, have sex with, but he was with the woman, right? The, the, the yeah, uh, Vivian. Yeah, because Patrick Swayze no. left. Yeah. So, yeah. She, so the Vivian character was sleeping with her, blah, blah, blah sure you've seen the movie yeah but yeah so then it comes out that it wasn't johnny castle's problem yeah it, it was, was him this, this asshole and it's see you have a lot of these themes in this movie which are really cool where first you have uh jennifer gray judging you know th- th- this is also goes into what happens in the, the the play i saw where you know people judge a don't they judge a book by the cover so yeah. you have jennifer gray judging patrick swayze and all of them because they're them and, you know, and then all of a sudden, like Patrick Swayze says, you assume I, I got her pregnant. But then you see later on, the dad does the same thing to Swayze. And that's when he says, like, you would see that, wouldn't you? Yeah. And yeah. he puts the glasses on and leaves. I find that really touching where he takes the glasses off. And then, yeah, yeah. It's almost like the, trying the, to be proper. Yeah, it's like the dude respectful. in The Big Lebowski where he goes to see The Big Lebowski and he starts talking shit. So he just puts the glasses back on. You know, he's turned yeah, yeah. off his. And then, yeah, he's trying to be respectful. But then. It's like if he had a hat, he would take off his hat. Yeah. To... And then he puts the hat on, like, I don't need to, you know. And then at the end of the movie, even you realize Orbach is, realizes to a certain extent he's even. Yeah. judging misjudging people because of class or whatever and he and then he's more that's how much of we realize how great of a daddy is that he even says to, to at the end to to, 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 I, to I the sways funny i mean i could have he's like i i i say when i'm wrong and i was wrong yeah but i played by my father <laughs> but he doesn't ever say like he's sorry no which i thought was kind of weird he doesn't say, I admit when i'm wrong yeah maybe he said i love you because when i love you what is it love you never means to say you're having to say you're sorry <laughs> whatever the hell that, that line is <laughs> For a love story. I did find it weird this time that he never was like, you know, he wasn't like, I admit when I'm wrong and I'm sorry. He just says, I admit when I'm wrong. And, and I, I was walks wrong. away. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Go fuck my daughter. 
but then he, and then it's also, I f- you really feel bad for Swayze's character here because at first glance, you think Swayze, he's good looking, you know, he's whatever, and he can, he can get any, he is probably getting any girl there. Yeah. But then you quickly realize uh, maybe like a Midnight Cowboy and American Gigolo kind of an issue where he's, he's, it, uh, you know, like you said, he's on an unemployment for for the, maybe yeah. I mean, the may, rest of the who year. knows what he's doing. Well, he said he's, he's certainly. Eating, what did he say? He was eating out of a can like yeah, yeah. the week before. So he, we're. Sh- I'm thinking he's not. He's probably living like in a tenement, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Strapped for cash, getting what you know, waiting, busting tables, maybe working trying to dance. In a butcher shop. Yeah, working in a butcher <laughs> shop with Marty, uh, Ernie Borgnine. But then he, when he comes here, suddenly he has these women who are you know rich as hell. And they're throwing him his room keys because they want some play for him. And he's, if he's playing, uh, he's supposed to be in this movie, what, early 20s or late teens? He's supposed to be like mid-20s. You know, so he's, uh, I thought he was a little younger because, so that doesn't I look like something he's. something where they were like, they were each 10 years older than they were supposed, than their characters. Because that means if she So she was like 26, 27 playing a 16, 17-year-old. And Swayze was like 34 playing a 24-year-old. Okay, so because I'm thinking like, how old is he if he's really betting her in the movie you know she but that's just, this is back in the yeah, yeah in the day 60 i swear like, she was she had id <laughs> but we're like an old we're like somebody who was like 25 yeah like marry a woman a girl and they'd like have 17 and they'd shit out like three or four kids quickly you know by, by the time she's 18 but she, he and then you really feel for him where he's like no he's he's being i i feel like he's still naive in that world yeah, he yeah. doesn't really i mean yeah he's betted women but who knows if he's you know he he feels like he's gonna they're, they're betting him not like well, the, he's, he's being used. Yeah, but it's it's like it's okay for the waiter who got what's her face pregnant, but Swayze's it's like no, I'm I'm being used for my body, you know, like a woman would be, but and and he's getting thrown out, so it's like you know you got to look at I'm kind of a victim here, which yeah. she I mean realizes. I'm sure it's even like he could I mean I don't think she he's getting paid for sex, but I'm sure he's getting like tipped big. Well, look at the for the, the dance lessons. Look at the guy with, have with his wife. With, Remember, he was going to the guy yeah. gave him like it was a, it was a hundred dollar bill there at yeah. least, and he had so a it's lot. like you know I'm sure you know Johnny Castle's feeling cheap. That's why you know? that's why I brought up the, the American Gigolo <laughs> yeah, yeah. Midnight Cowboy aspect, where it's like you're right, it's not like here's twenty bucks, it's on the bureau, get out of here, but it's. Yeah, he's getting tips out of it. They're probably giving him extra money. He's getting more dance lessons, you know, so it's on the books. So you kind of feel bad for Swayze because he's being judged here in this situation, you know. And he's and then you see he's kind of like a greaser because he's got the 57 Chevy or 58 Chevy, yeah, yeah. you know, and, you know, a great car. And, <laughs> I always find you know. it funny where you watch something um, that takes place. You watch a movie in the 80s that takes place in the 60s, for yeah. instance, like this one. And Swayze's got like a little bit of a mullet going on, you know. Like they can't shed like that '80s fashion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like the mullety hair was big in the '80s, and he, he still he has a little bit of a mullet going on, even though like his hair would have been much shorter, circa '63. Yeah, he's got something. It's, I mean, it wasn't even until the Beatles came where people started growing their, their hair. hair out. Yeah, uh, maybe Spanish people had some sort of long hair, but they, I think everything was yeah, it was like back. greased back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's amazing. So that you have, and, and a lot of times Swayze, I guess I'm I'm assuming his character is supposed to be from New York area. But once in a while, his southern draw comes in for a couple lines. Yeah, here yeah. it comes. So maybe he was born. Well, you know, know. He, uh, he like you could set up any kind of yeah backstory. situation. He could have been a kid from the south and, and came to New York and to live be a in, dancer. Yeah, and now he's fucked. Know, and now he's um, you know, living out of a, some Brooklyn. 
tiny apartment with three other guys. Yeah, trying to make ends meet or trying to take the care story of, of Johnny Cass. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's a, that's a prequel story. The story of Johnny, the ode to Johnny Cass. So the the whole abortion aspect of it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, this whole thing is reminiscent to an, a movie which I love, which I know is a fan of uh, your mom. Yeah. Uh, is Love with a Proper Stranger. Uh huh. Which is also a, it's a Steve McQueen Natalie Wood movie mm-hmm. where you have. Um, Steve McQueen accidentally knocks up Natalie Wood, and the whole movie is about what's going to happen to her, and she's trying to find him. She finds him, and, and she works at Macy's. He works as a, he's a musician, and then he, she's like, I'm pregnant, and then the idea is like, what are we going to do? We can't have the kid because we can't make ends meet, so she's going to have an abortion, and it gets to the point where he brings her there f- for the abortion, and it's a very back rooms, like yeah, almost like yeah. a really dis- you know, and I, I'm sure there's tons of other movies. Oh, that, there's a lot. There's you know, one that's coming to my mind, but I can't think of the title of it that I think was made in the late 70s or early 80s. That's a New York City, a big, a very big New York City movie that has to, that there's a whole abortion plot. I mean, it was a big thing. I mean, we don't get political or anything on this show, but it, it, it was a big thing because it was illegal. And this is, unfortunately, this is the kind of stuff that happened Yeah, when it was illegal. I mean, the things like adoption and having the baby weren't necessarily at least in these people's minds options and especially having to face a family and, yeah. and having that's to why admit. you have all those stories of like Bobby Darren and Eric Clapton and those Clapton story where like he grew up thinking his grandparents were his parents you know, you have all these celebrities. Oh, I didn't know that. that. I knew Darren's story. I didn't know that was Clapton's yeah, story, yeah. too. I'm oh. thinking that his mom was his sister because these women would get that was pregnant Darren. very yeah. young. And then they would just, like, be shipped off to, like, an aunt for nine months and then come back with a baby and to, like, avoid, you know, shame of the small town or whatever. Because yeah. the, the people the, would the, the parents would just say, like, oh, no, it's, it's we just had another baby. Yeah. And so, you know, that happened with a lot. Of, there's actually a lot of celebrities where that have that story. Um, it was a big part of uh, Clapton's life obviously but unlike issues you yeah. know um darren the same way uh those are the only two that are coming to mind immediately but i know there's you know a handful of other ones that are notable people that kind of grew up this way and so this... i mean that's the thing is that like to have a, a, a single woman pregnant i mean yeah back in the back in the like the, the day, 40s yeah. 50s and even in the early 60s i mean it was really scandalous and it was, it was tough on her and the family and you know who knows how the family would react and if the the guy was going to stay and that's the plot of love with a proper stranger is that she finds she's able to find McQueen who who got her pregnant and then they're, fig- they're trying to figure out what to do and it's a really touching story but it's very um i wouldn't say controversial but it's it's a it's a weird it, it, that I mean, it is controversial and i forget what movie <laughs> i forget what year that is i want to say that movie's early to mid 60s and uh yeah i guess you could say it is very controversial I mean, it's, a contra- the subject matter. it's a controversial subject you know yeah, and then not necessarily the movie you know but the subject matter. and the movie is great and it's really touching and, and yeah, if anybody really hasn't seen it check it out because mcqueen's great it's a great uh, alternate because if you only know mcqueen from like you know action movies or you know being the king of cool he's really good in the movie and it's it's it, there's actually moments in it that are very touching and very funny some of the dialogue and then at the end it has a very uplifting ending which I, which is really nice yeah. and they shot a lot of it around Macy's in New York City a Herald Square area so but that made me immediately think of that situation that, and I remember you telling me your mom liked that movie yeah I remember um, when I went to a big McQueen phase when I was in high school yeah where my mom and I would watch a lot of McQueen Sweet. movies together <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah he's a favorite of mine and that's uh, that's a movie there where it, that touches on this and like yeah off the top of my head, I don't really know other movies that 
that really deal with this. I mean, there's always it could be a side, you know, yeah, sub sub sub. I don't know how many movies you know? where like that's the focus of the entire yeah. movie. But and then the, having the idea of having to go to like a back room yeah. doctor. Well, that's the thing. You know I, mean, I mean, that's like the scary part of it. Yeah. Is unfortunately, like these women were being mutilated. <laughs> yeah. You know, by qu- either quack. Doctors or even people just posing as doctors to do it. I mean, uh, it was a real issue and a real fear and like a reality. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. It was like it was a real thing that was happening. And And it's I'm surprised uh, not to take away from any of Orbach's prowess as an MD or uh, whatever he is, or, you know, uh, MD, RX or or, (laughs) uh, or DR, if he's able to. He was able to fix the situation, so you know, he just took yeah, out yeah. a needle. And, and again, you're going to be able to have a baby. Yeah, like he, like he he's clearly got up in there. You he, know? he was able to stem some sort of bleed. Maybe she was bleeding down there. I mean, it's not really yeah, too I mean, graphic. They would put, like, coat hangers up there. Yeah. Just, like, pull that Terrible it's, stuff. It's, you know, it was but not pretty, but I'm this surprised is the kind of thing that happened. And we're grateful then. that Orbach was able to fix the situation, so, you know, tie all the loose ends and he's Thank like all goodness. right uh, to for his doctor but it's a, you know it's a very powerful part of the movie i think it's beautifully handled like you said they never mention it i mean it's never discussed in man, in name or in you know you yeah, they never say abortion they never, they never say, say abortion pregnant. they never say pregnant. they say knocked her up but who you know if you know if you're young you're not gonna know that yeah means. so as you're right as a kid as kids, I think, you know, I definitely didn't know that that's yeah. what it was about. You just felt well, she, she got was punched s- in the face. <laughs> she was just sick or something. Yeah. But uh, watching it now, I think it's a very powerful part of the movie. I think uh, Cynthia Rhodes, who plays Penny, is great and beautiful. And yeah. the they even say when she was sick, they actually had to put makeup on. To make her look sick because she was so pretty that even when she didn't have any makeup she on, looked hot as, she still like yeah. looked too good to be. That happened sick. with Mel Gibson when he was shooting um, the Passion of the Christ with Monica Bellucci as Mary. He said like, the more dirt and makeup they put on, she just looked m- more beautiful. And they're like, we don't know what to do here with Monica Bellucci. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's a, it's a. I don't know. I just well, really... you can see why that it, she certainly didn't want to pull it when Clearasel was like, "You need to take that because it's oh, like, sure. how would you take that whole? That's a whole, you know, that's like the the whole catalyst for having her, yeah, having yeah. to learn how to dirty dance. Yeah, yeah. You I know? mean, it's such a huge. It's a it's a subplot, and it's it's a seemingly minor subplot on the surface. But when you really, like you said, when you really start to look at that subplot and you see how many things it affects, it tells us everything we need to know about Johnny Castle as an audience without like blatantly saying like, he's a good dude. Yeah, yeah. You know, it shows us that he's a, he's a, he's a compassionate, good friend. Um, you know, the, he and he and the Penny character haven't been together since they were kids, according to the cousin, but he still loves her and they're, they're great friends. He takes care of her. Uh, it's, it is the whole catalyst for the tension between Baby and her dad, which is such an important part of the script. You're right. It's the whole reason why she learns how to dirty dance. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you... <laughs> if, if they had, you know, kind of uh, gave into that, I don't know how they would have, you know, worked that around, you know? Um, yeah, it, it you know, and, it, and it's, it's a central point of the whole movie. So, uh, you know, I don't know how you'd... Again, how you'd get around to that, you know? And it works out beautifully. I mean, the, the whole plot of the movie, I guess, or the message you can really get is like, you know, it teaches you not to judge people in certain ways or even stick up for people, you know? Well, it's got that, you're right. It's got like that forbidden, 
you know, love of Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story, whatever, like that story is being told. But it's also not the whole story, which is nice. You know, like for the most part, like uh, West Side Story, like that's the that's the crux of the movie. That's what that that's what that musical is about. It's about the sharks, and the jets, you know, forbidden love between the two gangs that this movie is not about that, but it's a beautiful kind of undertone. It's there that adds, I think, realism, but also adds drama and, and conflict. She certainly ages quick because she comes there and she's wearing like the long cardigans and she's kind of covered up. And then all of a sudden she's freaking, you know, <laughs> literally naked with yeah, them. You know? well, it's like she's it's her. It's she very much comes to age too with the, yeah, with her, it's learning a, her own sexuality. Exactly. I mean, it's certainly it's a really beautifully told coming of age story for her. And I think she I think Jennifer Grey does a really great job in it because she never really had that many starring roles yeah to my recollection she always was she was in a lot of stuff but never as the lead i think she does a really great job i think she's believable she's cute yeah enough but in a in a realistic natural kind of way like a girl next door kind of way um and I also just happen to be a sucker for like summer love movies. Yeah, Greece. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, I think when we talked about Greece, I talked about how like which was around I, the last this time last year. That was like September. I oh, think. was it? Okay, we did that because they were going back to school. Yes, yes. Uh, you were more interested in. I but I was like, I want to know what the, I would love to read, see the story of Sandy and uh, what's his face summer love Danny during the summer because I just am a sucker for those summer love movies because it's very uh, especially when you look back youth. For me, it's a very romantic notion. I didn't have one, but yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing like you have this finite amount of time and you fall in love, especially when you're young. Love is such a powerful thing. I talked about this on the John Carpenter podcast I did for the Wrong Reel recently, where you know, to me, Christine, oddly enough, the cap, film, cap, the film Christine, uh, based on the book by Stephen King, but the John Carpenter film. It's about a kid that falls in love with his car, but he becomes so obsessed that to me it was like it it captures, oddly enough, the intensity of youth love. Yeah. Where it's like you're so out of control. Like you're blind. You've never felt these feelings before, so they're so powerful and you have all your hormones or like yeah. you know, so uh the idea of like Is this, is it implied that he that it becomes like a like a what do they call that? A mechophile? Uh, no, he, there's no. I mean, he like touches the yeah, car, but not, there's uh, not any kind of eroticism. Way, but there's no past. like, yeah, yeah. You just like it's a passionate love, yeah. You know, non-physical. Because that'd be. I wonder if they were to if they were to redo that if they were trying to add that, imply that. You know, because yeah. remember with go kind of crash with it. Yeah, because so you remember um, the Gus Van Zant version of Psycho. You, you they added in like him like. You know, uh, like, masturbating while he's looking at um, yeah through the people. Janet Lee or whatever her name who reprised the role yeah. before she took the shower, and then that also I guess justifies why the mother personality comes out spoiler and uh, <laughs> and kills the, the spoiler yeah. Janet Lee in Psycho. So uh, I wonder here if they would maybe, but that's yeah. But then my point is just like, but you know, and, and teen love is a very powerful thing. What this movie also perfectly uh, captures 
an 80s movie captures the late 50s idea of the teen love with, like you're saying, the Romeo and Juliet. You have that, like, in popular song with, like, say, the Shangri-La's leader sure, of the pack yeah. where she's going to, you know, fall in love with the leader in the pack and then something tragic happens, like he takes the curve too hard and dies on his motorcycle. <laughs> but you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Or the Rebel Without a Cause where sure. J- James Dean is falling in love with the preppy Natalie Wood again. You yeah, know? well, so you have that's, that perfect, 50s, that's another... You know, like perfect example of like that teen obsession love. She's, I mean, I've written a song about her, you know, that character. Natalie Wood's character. Yeah, yeah. on my album, there's a song called A Song for Judy, and she's Judy in oh, that wow. movie. And it's about. I know that song. <laughs> and it's, it's a great a, album. It's when about, you're coming home. Uh, you know, this woman who's doesn't, she's not a girl anymore, but she's not a woman yet. And she's kind of, she wants to be loved by. She wants to be babied by her father, but at the same time, she wants to pretend she's an adult with Damn, James Jim Dean. Backus. Um, which is, you know... Oh, no, Jim Backus isn't her father. That's James Dean's father, sorry. Yes. But, uh, yeah, it's just a very... It's all this rambling about how kind of intense love is when you're that age. Especially when you add, and I think, for this, for our sake in this movie, the idea of the class. Yeah. You the fall in love with someone. Thing, but then this idea know. of... It's so powerful during a, a a restricted time period. Yeah, you know, here we don't have this like breakup at the end. We don't really know what happens to them after this, but so much of that those loves those those summer love stories are like okay, I, I you know now it's time for me to go home and, get and back for to you to life. go home. Yeah, but know? this also suggests so we have the happy note of. Uh, Jack Weston saying maybe we could survive if we update, <laughs> and then also I felt like with with Orbach saying I was wrong, maybe he'd be open to having now uh, the sways coming over the house, and you know checking out some stuff, and maybe even you know now he'd be open to the the, the daughter dating. Uh, I guess if we start wrapping up, this seg- segues me into the, the to the to the touring version I saw. Yeah, and then, um, and then, then the TV. Yeah, the one. the one that just came out. Um, we saw in April it hit New Haven, the and it was doing like I think one night stays in each each. It's been going all over the country for the past couple of years, and yeah. it hit New Haven. And uh, they added this huge subplot in this movie takes and the story takes place in August of '63. So um, if you look at also in time, August of '63 is also when Martin Luther King did his uh, "We Shall Overcome" speech uh-huh. on the Lincoln Memorial. So. That is mentioned briefly in this movie here, where the the, the grandson of Jack Weston, the owner of the place, says, "I'm going to go, um, you know, go to Washington and, uh, you know, be part of that march." And then you have another mention at the beginning when um, they're getting out of the car and and the older sister's forgetting about her shoes. And Jerry Orbach's like, "That's not a tragedy." And he says a couple of things, but he says, "Dogs, them releasing dogs on people in Birmingham, that's a tragedy." That's another. Those are the yeah. two. Um, uh, references I noticed within the 1987 movie of the race relations. Yeah. In the play, they bring this huge subplot up of the Martin Luther King story and civil rights. Uh-huh. And it becomes a very, very heavy subplot in the play where the grandson of Jack Weston, the hotel owner, is trying to get money and trying to get the balls and the gusto to tell his father that he's not going to take over, or his grandfather next year, he's not going to take over. It's interesting because he seems like such a douche. I know, movie. but they make him here where he's like, he has he's to... He's like a good dude. <laughs> uh, no, but it's like he's, I think it's like he's a dick. that They follow all the plot points of him being a douche, especially yeah, the yeah. Patrick Swayze, but it finally comes... 
like he is finding himself and he realizes that he must he also. He too is coming of age. Yeah. And he has to face his father and tell his father, I think it's his father in the play, but maybe he's his grandfather that he's not, he's going to go and mark. And it becomes this subplot of like, you know, the civil rights thing. And they have a lot of black actors in the play. So I was wondering if they, they, they increased this subplot one, because they want it to be with the times and have it be very like racial tensions. Let's yeah. like bring some of this in here. Uh, they wanted to maybe justify having a lot of African-Americans in the cast because you have this kind of fabulous African-American singer who just it, it comes on and just starts singing these songs that weren't really in the movie. Some of them were, she'll, they'll, they'll sing some of the songs, but she'll just come on and be like this oracle and start singing like, you know, and it's like, you're like, oh, and then it's her again and she'll leave, you know. And uh, it's it's really interesting because I think it works to a certain extent, but then to a to a lesser extent, I don't think it does because then at the end of it, you have the Jack Weston character like going around the last day. He's like taking donations for his son or grandson to, for bus fare to go down. I'm like, that's com- personally, I think that's completely unbelievable that Jack Weston <laughs> would be hitting up all these. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd be like, look, we're not going to talk about this. You know, I don't want you to do this, but it's, it's, I found that a little unbelievable in the play. Um, it was awesome that, you know, the uh, in the Still of the Nights on the soundtrack, and that's a Five Satin song, and the Five Satins are from New Haven. Yeah. They used to sing that, like, on the street corners, the doo-wop stuff. So when that song came on, it's really interesting how the, the songs of the soundtrack played to the sold-out audience. Sure. Where when the in the Still of the Night came on, everybody, like, started applauding because it's, it's a New Haven song. It's, it's, it's on the album. It, there's all those identifiers. Sure, sure. But then also, like... You, when you have like uh, Hungry Eye start playing, people start getting into it. You know, it's like people are, in, it's so weird because people are anticipating what they want to see and what's going to happen. Yeah. So yeah. they didn't play um, She's Like the Wind, but they played a um, an instrumental version of it that was very similar. So when you start hearing that in the play, everyone's like getting, you know, so it's like people are anticipating what, you know, especially, you know, like, like I said, Hungry Eyes. So it was very interesting to see how the, the soundtrack had such an impact on people where people were waiting for those moments. Yeah. And yeah. it adds to me, for me, I would think to these actors, like a level of, um, they have to like fulfill every night. Sure. Sure. To, yeah. to deliver what these people are wanting, especially since this guy is having to pick this girl up every night. You know what I mean? That's, <laughs> yeah, that can, yeah. you know, like God forbid if something goes wrong or whatever, but I mean, it was really well done. I'm trying to think if there's anything else from the, from the, from the play that was, I mean, they handled it very well. The subplot of like the thieves, uh, everything. It was surprising how good they were able to do everything. And they had kind of like a Skype, uh, um, like a, what do you call it? A Skype background mm-hmm. in the back. And that's kind of a, a, a thing where if you have lights behind it, it'll, it'll be transparent. But if you push lights onto it, it'll it'll be like it can be like a almost like a projector you can project things onto it so they were using that a lot to add these beautiful so when they go outside it looks like they're in the water it you know it they were like in it looked like they were in waist deep water how they did it so a lot of stuff was it was ingenious how they you know this is a it wasn't at at the schubert there it was only there for two days so it's amazing how this traveling show. show was able to make it look so you know and it was it's portable and it's not just living in residency there. Yeah. So I didn't see the TV version. Yeah, I, I didn't so, remember that it was on, but I was flipping through the channels and I caught like the last scene. Yeah. It was the sister character was doing her song for the talent show, but it was a much bigger number. There was an African which that actor actually wrote for this. She got credit finally because it was on the soundtrack. She actually wrote that song for the movie. She was she sang she sang like a. In the in the TV version, she sang like a popular song. I can't think of uh, what what song. 
at the moment. I want to say it was like a Curtis Mayfield written song or something, but maybe not because that would have been later. Was it Otis? Because I know Otis is on the soundtrack. Otis Redding's on. Maybe on the so. She sings something with an African American like band member. I feel like crying. I feel like crying. No, it was no. like um, something like "I Shall Be Released," but not that. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so that's where I came in. Yeah. Uh, so then you see like the nobody puts baby in the corner line. And, yeah. Uh, then you see the big dance number, uh, which does. A lot of that just didn't work. I heard a lot of mixed reviews about this. Uh, it was different from other ones because the other ones we've seen, these revivals of like Grease and Peter Pan and um, the other one, what's the one, um, you know, running up on the mountain singing. Oh, Doe yeah. Deer Song, Sound yeah. of Music. Sound of Music, where these are live to tape on like stages. This one was actually a, f- a movie. <coughs> yeah, uh, I guess. Yeah, they, did, did, they filmed a TV movie as opposed to filming it live. To yeah, tape. yeah. yeah. So, uh, but the, where where it differs, to not to get into like the bad stuff about it, because like I said, I only really saw the last twenty minutes, maybe, uh, and I, and because I didn't see the beginning, I don't know if this happens in the beginning and it bookmarks this story. But the way it ends is then it kind of dissolves, tr- you know, transitions to baby sitting in the audience of the Broadway show of Dirty Dancing. Yeah, and she. So then there's this plot, and like I said, I don't know if the movie starts with this plot, but the it ends with that she wrote a book about her youth in the Catskill Mountains, and they made a movie, they made a Broadway musical out of it. Oh, wow. And so she's there in the audience, and the, it ends, and then Johnny comes out, because Johnny's either the choreographer or the or he's in it. The but, Johnny that her character... Who, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the character... Who you know the person who the book is based on yeah. is working on the play on the musical and then they have they meet and they talk and they're like you know it seems like they never saw each other again oh, after sad. that and they're You're talking cry. like how you doing and then you know and then you know the little girl runs up mommy mommy and you realize like it's like ten years later or so or and you know they've gone on with their lives. And so there's this, and the, her husband comes up, and he's like, "Oh, nice to meet you, to Johnny." Did, did, did she like? She's like the Windstar playing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think so. she loved the wind. You're like, oh. uh, so there was this whole, which I actually thought was a really interesting, like a nice coda to like yeah, bookmark it. Yeah, like a really nice kind of like emotional, sentimental. No, that never. They don't kind have of that coda the to the story. Yeah, which is we now see like ten. I'm, I'm guessing ten years later, just by the way their dress looks more like seventies. You know, you know, we do forget though where they're like, "Oh, it's good to see you," and you can tell that they still share this connection, and this was a very important part of both of their lives. And now has become. She wrote a book about it. She's a famous author because of it. He's choreographing the show that that book is based on. It's become such an iconic moment in both of their lives, but yet they're not together. I, I actually thought it was really kind of cool. That actually ends up working. And you, we, we must not forget. I guess that I've forgotten that this movie is told. The eighty-seven movie is told in in flashback because she starts it off when they're driving up to the Catskills she sets it all up the narration yeah and I don't I don't recall there ever being any other narration in the movie of her no I don't think so she just sets up this is pre-Kennedy this is assassination this is pre-Beatles while we were still you know like it was the end of that 50s era you know Um, so I guess to develop that more yeah I mean if you look at the the research we did, they talk about the the Broadway play, the travel the tour that just says they added a couple scenes, but they added this huge subplot like I just said about and I think it's just for twofold to 
justify African-American actors in it because I guess they may, in real life, they may not have been able to mix in these circles, especially at Jewish, you know, yeah, if they were yeah. Jewish-only camps, you might not have anybody there. <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> the idea of a Jewish camp seems <laughs> inappropriate for you know, some I, reason. I, yeah, it just sounds it sounds weird, but, like, if it's just a lot of Jewish people going up to this thing, you know, you yeah, may I have... You know, I, I didn't get the whole Jewish thing. But, I, even but is there something around. wrong with this? Because I, I when we read about it, a lot of people were like, yeah, of course, I could pick out a mile away. And I was, and I was looking... <laughs> it's not like everyone's going, oi! Yeah, or, or Schlitzel, or whatever. I mean, <laughs> it's not a know. bunch of... Yeah, I don't, I don't recall. I mean, sure, yeah. there were Jewish people, but I never... It didn't dawn on me. This is like a like a like yeah. If you're a Jewish, you'll know your film. And I was like, I didn't I didn't pick it up, but I, I guess it's something we missed. But so I felt like to add in the the huge subplot of of the of him going to MLK yeah. and, and all that, that could and then, have been in the like I said. There's this moment at the end of the TV movie where she sings with a black guy who's a part of the like a, in the band, yeah. and they're singing a song that seems like. I, I wish I could remember. Like what we song shall it is. overcome that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, not that, but something that seems relevant like to cr- that, to the fact that it's a white person and a black person, optimistic about the future. You know, uh, uh, you know. So it, it seems like that might be a subplot in the TV. Movie. Like people, people get ready. There's a no. That's a Curtis Mayfield song. Yeah, that's why I said it's like yeah, it's like, get, like one of the earlier, <laughs> not like, not like Superfly or Freddy's Dead. That later stuff. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's why, like, the Curtis Mayfield thing came to mind. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think it was the Curtis Mayfield. Uh, maybe it's a what call it? What's his name? Who died? Um, Dion Ramblon. I'm gonna yeah, think, see if I can get it in turn on this. Uh, what's his name? Who died? Uh, uh, oh, he's the the, the young uh, African American singer who was stabbed to death. Uh, 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 not Marvin Gaye. Sam. Come on, it's on a tip of my tongue. Sam, Sam, Sam Moore? No, that's Sam Moore from the thing. Oh, God damn it. Cook? Yes, Sam Cook. Thank you, Sam no Cook. Took maybe for yeah. to register. Maybe it's a maybe it's a Sam Cook song because he does a lot of songs oh, back maybe. then. You know what I mean? And he might there might even Sam Cook might even appear on this album. Um, but the album comes out and the album does so, so well. It's it's ends up staying on the charts for um, 18 weeks at number one in the Billboard Top 200, the 87 films thing. It goes platinum 11 times, and more than 32 million copies uh, sell um, worldwide. And then it's followed up in 1988 by, uh, like I said, another album called More Dirty Dancing. And it was so popular that the re-release of the Contour single, Do You Love Me, uh, ends up coming back on the charts, and it peaks at number 11 on the Billboard charts, where in 1962, when the song came out, it peaked on um, in number three. So I think that's a pretty amazing feat to have it because of the movie that Do You Love Me ends up uh, charting again. And uh, it, it's a pretty heavy soundtrack. And this is the thing where they talk about, in, I guess, in Russia and in, in areas of maybe... Uh, I'm sorry. It was uh, Don't Think Twice It's All Right, which I believe might be a Bob Dylan song. Oh, Okay. Not blown in the wind or something like that. No. Um, they talk about that. The the author uh, Bergstein talks about that this uh, soundtrack was so influential, also to people who lived on the other side of the Berlin Wall and like uh, it's that East Germany and Russia, because uh, they identified so much with this soundtrack and with the movie. They were, if you look at a lot of the original footage of the Berlin Wall coming down, a lot of people, I guess, are wearing Dirty Dancing shirts because it was such a impact in, um, I guess, what time, what year? 88 or 89, I forget, off top of hand when the Berlin Wall came down. I'm going to say you know? 89. But yeah. It was I mean, Reagan was still, I think, because he's the one who told 
uh, what's his face, Gorbachev to tear the wall down, and and Bush came in, senior came in in eighty in the I think the the fall of or the he was elected in eighty eight, so um, so my, yeah, eighty eight or eighty nine when the Berlin Wall fell down, so that it, the sound check played such a huge role over there as well, and uh, it ends up being like. Uh, I don't know. They talk about like say the 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 sex scene between the two of them is like by many called like the one of the sexiest sex scenes in sex scene history. Yeah, you know that the, with the with the music and the two of them together. And even her erotic. line of like uh, like I'm afraid of walking out that door and never feeling the way I feel about it. You know anybody the way I feel about you. That whatever that line is, yeah. which is actually a beautifully written line. Was some list had called it like the most romantic movie line like in history? Yeah, there's stats to all this, and even like the baby line is 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 like on like is like I think 98. Uh, Nobody puts baby in the corner is like like number 98 on like the best hundred lines in movie history. And then um, Patrick Swayze almost wanted to get that line out. He 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 didn't like it, but then when he screened the movie, he says it works good. But he thought it was going to be a little silly that line. Yeah, um, I mean, this soundtrack ends up beating that year. You had Michael Jackson's "Bad" was out, and I forget what Bruce Springsteen album's out. But this soundtrack beats both those albums, and that's a feat because Jackson at the time coming off a of Thriller, sure. uh, Quincy Jones, and Quincy Jones again with "Bad." That was a huge freaking album. Yeah. Also, the Lake Lore, uh, which is where they filmed, uh, I guess, a lot of the exteriors and stuff. Uh, every year since 2009, they have a Dirty Dancing Festival. Yes, summer camp. And the Kellerman Hotel, uh, Kellerman's Hotel, which is uh, where they filmed it, which is the Mountain Lake Hotel, they have Dirty Dancing weekends often. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, so th- when the movie comes out, we have, they did, in 1988, they did a music tour called Dirty Dancing Live in Concert that featured uh, Bill Medley and Eric Carmen, who sang the uh, um uh, I've had the time of my life, and then CBS tried to quickly put launch a Dirty Dancing TV series, but uh, none of the original casts were in the, the series, and it was canceled after only a few episodes. And then we have the uh, in 2004 the pseudo sequel called Dirty Dancing Havana Nights comes out, which I've never seen, but reportedly they paid Swayze five million just to cameo in it as a dance instructor, and I hear he's only literally like in five seconds of it, but. He gives they give him five million for the cameo, and he'd only earned two hundred thousand for this eighty-seven for his role in the movie. So that's pretty yeah. cool. And uh, we have, like we said, in two thousand seven on the twentieth anniversary, they released the film with additional footage in the theaters uh, in the UK. That my wife remembers, it was huge at the time. They did a reality show called Dirty Dancing: The Time of Your Life. They did a UK. It's kind of like a Dancing with the Stars kind of sure. a show, and they shot it in America at the Mountain Lake Resort. So huh. it was ama- people were like, oh my God, they're shooting at the same location. <laughs> you know, they did that. And that was 2007. That was big. And then uh, also the UK did one of these Channel 5 documentaries called Seriously Dirty Dancing about this woman, Dawn Porter, who was so obsessed. Uh, she was a self-confessed da- dirty dancing addict. And it was about her and her obsession. And she ends up, it culminates with her end up like, I guess, performing the Dirty Dancing dance in front of her friends and family. Yeah. And then in 2015, then there was rumors that in 2011 they were going to remake the film, and then that it was on, off, on, off until 2015, where they, they, they ordered, ABC ordered a three-hour musical remake, and then it finally aired, like you just said, the end of May. Yeah. Literally, like, I guess last week or the week before it was, it was of really, this recording. Yeah, it was, it was not long ago at all. That they did that. So and I was like... We should have done it. We didn't realize. We should have done this one last week. I, I feel like a lot of those movies are, uh, 
you know, they're coming out like they were bigger things when they were coming out. Like I remember it was huge when um, the the Sound of Music came out and yeah. Peter Pan and then Grease certainly. Pan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Pan. Where's the clock? <laughs> I hear. Wow. Tinker Bell. Get out of there. <laughs> Whoa. Um, let's see. The, 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 In case you didn't know, Christopher Walken yeah, he played, played the hook. Wow, Doctor Hook. <laughs> Look at the hook. Big. Um, <laughs> The the big lift scene that Blake and I were attempting before this movie, um, they had they had did it in the uh, Jennifer Grey and Patrick Stewart. Stewart, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Are you ready? Make it so. Make it so. Enter. Go. Wesley Crusher. Yeah, Wesley. Hello, Beverly. Um, they don't. They they. Did the lift in the screen in the test footage in the screening or in the te- in the screen tests? But she was so worried to do it uh, any rehearsals. So the first time you see him lift her is the first time when they filmed it. So that that actual lift at the end of the movie when it when it you know it slow mo's and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's actually kind of a really clever plot device that it's like, like there's this thing they're building that up to. that is that is the. MacGuffin of their relationship, like they're working towards this. That's how they fall in love. Yeah, is trying to do this, and this they never lift. actually do it. They never consummate until <laughs> in front of everybody, <laughs> and then they fucking cuckold the crap. Yeah, they, they, right. And everyone, like, wow, that's really great. Um, sadly, too, when when um, the Sways was diagnosed with prostate cancer, uh, that was what he so reportedly. This is what he, he used to say to people, his friends, that like nobody puts my pancreas in the corner, and relating to like you know he'll get through this. But you know, sadly, we know he didn't. Although I didn't watch that show he did, Beast, which I, I'd actually like. I, I planned to, at one time that was the show he was working on up until yeah, he passed yeah. away, which was supposed to be pretty good. Um, let's see. As we're winding down here, I mean, we we talked about the abortion aspect and like you know the abortion rights activists call this the gold standard for cinematic portrayals of of uh, abortion in a in a movie uh this when this movie came out it, it really spread because of word of mouth promotion and in 10 days it had already hit ten, uh the 10 million mark and then within seven months of its release it was at 60 million just domestically and then it was the highest one of the highest grossing movies of 87 by uh doing uh 170 million worldwide and then by 88, when it came on video, we said it was the first film to sell a million copies on video. And it, when it was re-released in 97, it sold a shitload of movies. And then when it was released in 97, because of the resurgence, they gave Swayze a, a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And uh, it's had a big life, you know, ahead of it. And it's, it's you know, women, they, they rate this number one. Uh, Britain's Sky Movies listed Dirty Dancing as the number one woman's most watched movie of all time alongside uh, Grease. Uh, ahead of Greece, Sound and Music, Pretty Woman, and Star Wars for some reason. Star Wars. Oh, yeah, trilogy. apparently it's 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 often called the Star Star Wars for girls. Yeah, I, I could completely see. I mean, and then like, and then when this premiered on the you know in Australia, the the stage version did six point five million in two thousand four. It uh, sold out crowds. It's uh, it's the first play I think it's maybe in, in on London's West West End to pre sell out six months in advance. So uh, it's had a big, pretty pretty crazy run. Um, so it's, and, and then, like I said, the, the guy Ortega, the, cho- the choreographer, he went up to direct, we said newsies, he choreographed and direct, but he ended up doing all the high school musical movies. Mm. He choreographed and directed them too, along with, uh, some episodes of the Gilmore Girls, which Kelly Bishop had a starring role in, in the Gilmore Girls. So there's there a little reprisal there. Yeah. So. Let it grow on. Dun dun dun. <laughs> 
I don't know if we've missed anything uh, here. Jennifer Grey. Yeah. She never really did a whole lot after this. She ended up having a nose job at some point. Yeah, it looks completely different. Looks very me. different. She's she's beautiful. But she's married to what's his face? Uh, the gentleman um, from the Agents of Shield. Agent, what's his face? Oh, Coulson. Yeah, that's they've been married for like twenty years or maybe oh, longer. Good for them. Yeah, yeah, they're very, you know. And uh, but uh, she pops up. She there was when we were in college. She would pop up occasionally and stuff. And it'd be like, wow, Jennifer Grey's hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, number ninety-eight on the hundred most the film institutes a hundred quoted lines of all time. Nobody puts baby in a corner. And. Uh, I don't know. I've I've often said it. I don't know if it's ever been brought up on the podcast, but I've often said that in my in my heart. I'm a 14 year old girl. You so are. This movie very much plays to that 14 uh, year old girl inside me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, how can it? You know, it's it's just it's. Uh, I it's, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad yeah. we did this one. You know, it was it's, it was it's fun. It's and it, it it certainly gave me a new respect for the movie. Um, you know, and just it's 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 sad that I mean Orbach died of cancer in in two thousand four, and he donated his eyes. So somebody's walking around the Greater New York area with Orbach's eyes, which is yeah, he's an organ donor, which is amazing. And then yeah. we said the Sways died in '09 from um, pancreatic cancer. I think of I don't know. I want to say I'm guessing seventh and or Broadway and. 51st Street, there's like this little awning where you can see from the door, it just goes, you walk in and it just goes upstairs and it's the Jerry Orbach Theater. I don't know wow. what's up there, but I always see the awning. I've walked up, you know, I've walked past Well, you need to grow up one of these days and check, well, we'll do like Prince of the City and then you, you <laughs> let me know what, what's up there. Um, and it's just amazing to think that like we were talking about how this was going to be a flop. Yeah. Uh, the executives for uh, Vestron was the company that was, that ended up folding uh, that was the straight-to-video company that produced this as their first movie. They thought it was going to be a flop, and they were saying just burn the negative and collect the insurance. They were—that's how, yeah. you know, how much the cards were stacked. Well, against originally, this thing. a couple years earlier, they there was a major studio like MGM or something that was interested, but then the person then there was a changing of the guard, and the person that was interested at the studio ended up getting replaced, and so it kind of fell by the oh, way. She was the woman. The, the MGM um, executive was the woman that. Uh, Bergstein met at lunch and they fleshed out yeah. came up with the title before the script and all that with the Latin dancing but then when she left MGM or uh, to my recollection MGM might not be might yeah be, it was MGM uh, then, the, then the script just kind of went yeah but fell by the wayside yeah you know, for so a couple then years. they started trying to find somebody else to make it and that's where they got this Vestron company but uh, I thought thoroughly enjoyable I don't know if we did it justice you know who we forget we forgot to mention last in his first movie uh, Wayne Knight oh yes it's Newman his, Newman it's his, fir- it's his first movie and uh, and that became a running gag on set that like his terrible jokes he'd do you know that really he got a really this really was the first movie for him to shine and uh we had talked about the camaraderie on set, but people just started to like hang out and refer to each other as their character names. And the director and writers encouraged that and to the point with the dancers, as physical as they got grinding uh, together, they were not allowed to have any kind of talk off, off set, I guess, so that the sexual tension would be captured only on film yeah. for kind of like going for like a, like a, maybe like a kind of method mm-hmm. acting aspect. But, but yeah, he's great in it. Wayne Knight, all those funny little gags. And uh, something you'll appreciate, uh, just the last bit about the television movie, yeah. the character of uh, the band leader, like the older black guy. Yeah, Tito. Tito, uh, played by Charles Cole in the, in the 
in the movie, in yeah. the television movie, it's Billy D. Williams. Billy D. Williams, but I, I would have watched it just for that, having Billy D. If Billy D's there. Yeah. I'm, maybe I'm wrongfully, maybe it makes me racist. I'm assuming that's the character he's playing. Well, no, because he's, I don't he, see, he's wearing like a white tux jacket and he's talking to whoever the, 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 the guy. Jack Weston yeah, character. Yeah, the Jack Weston character is like, oh, that's crazy shit happening. I mean, it's funny to think that, you know, uh, at the end of the play, they, it, I mean, the, it was an African American band leader in the play, too. And, you know, they have the. All, all, I think because of the popularity of the movie, a lot of these, almost all the dialogue is verbatim. And it's the same thing where you have the Jack Weston character. Like, remember when, you know, them serving the first pasteurized milk and us through the war years when we had no meat and, you know, in the Depression we had nothing. And I find that so touching because since I'm such a romantic for the 30s and 40s era, that like, you know, it is an end of an era for them as well. You know, that it's, it's, and it's also nice, again, to, to think that like, you know, Weston's, if he's had a black band leader that long, going back to like the, the 20s and 30s. Yeah, he's progressive. Yeah, he's very progressive for the time because, I mean, you didn't really have integrated bands until the late 30s and 40s. So I don't remember, I mean, I guess by the 60s. Tito wasn't be, allowed to stay at the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking assholes. You know? He's allowed yeah. to work there. Man. He's allowed to work there, but he can't stay at the fucking hotel. But like, you know, who knows if the band, then maybe it was like, like a Cap Calloway or like a, a Duke Ellington kind yeah, of situation. Yeah. Anyway, but, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did too, and I think, like you said, it really, um, it really knocks into the summer. It gets our summer rolling in a, in a really good way. Even though it doesn't take place till August. Yeah, but it's who knows. It's getting us. Yeah. They're they're all, they're going driving to their summer. Yeah, fun. they're going up eighty seven to to, 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 po- to the po- I was gonna say Poconos to the to the uh, Catskills, and uh, geez, in two weeks we got another uh, favorite coming out. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. what it is, but I know that. It's gonna we be great. Big, we got a big summer. We could tease it. We're gonna. We're still stuck in 1987. <laughs> in two, yeah. I don't even know what it is. Yeah, yeah. But I, so, I'm with uh, it. Ch- so check us out on uh, Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter handles at Sat Sleepovers. We have a pretty awesome Facebook group, a community of people. We're trying to build our our, our Twitter following. Yes, so, please, people. Yeah. We have a Twitter account. <laughs> please. Why not just follow us? Uh, and uh, you know. Check us out. Check out our, our regular website, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, because we try to put extras in, uh, like we like to call further reading for each cast. Um, check our Facebook page out. Tell a friend, like our stuff, comment if you like. Rate like, and review us on iTunes, yeah, please. Tell, tell us we've what had you... a couple of nice ones recently. Yeah, Thank you great. so much. If you're listening, we yeah. appreciate it. We had it. some great fan art recently, which oh, was yes. amazing by Retro Cat uh, uh, Adventures. I'd like to say thank you to them for doing this. Really, if you go to our our either our home web page or our Facebook page, you can find it. It's really awesome fan art of Blake and I as children watching, uh, <laughs> you know, with our a bearded child. Uh, you're a bearded child. And, you know, and, and our, and our, um, our onesies eating and watching popcorn and making joke colas with my dog, babe in the background. We're watching a movie. So beautiful. Thank you so was, much. Yeah. It was so nice. It's, it's, it's so humbling. But anyway, uh, hope you're, you're going to enjoy your summer as we are. Yes. And check us back out in two weeks. Cause we're going to have an all new episode, which is going to be pretty cool. Hope. Bye. uh. Later.